Welcome to Cocktails and Calamity, the show where we get inebriated and discuss the fallout of technology, politics, and the social transformations shaping humanity's global future. And we are live. Welcome to Cocktails and Calamity, the show where we get lit, get comfortable, and discuss the technology, politics, and social transformations shaping humanity's global future. Thank you for joining Kristen and I here at the Calamity Desk this lovely Friday evening. I'm so thrilled because our guest today has spent his entire career theorizing about technology, innovation, and the future of the human species. Peter, um, is it Leiden or Leiden? Leiden. Yeah, Leiden. 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 Everyone gets that wrong. Leiden, my bad. Um, so Peter Leiden is a futurist and a published author. In addition to his two books and TEDx talk, uh, he's written in newspapers, Newsweek, and was the managing editor for Wired Magazine. His most recent project, Transformation, tells the story, uh, the future history of America from the world uh, from 2020 to 2050. The six-part series lays out a positive yet plausible scenario of how we could actually solve the greatest challenges of climate change, economic inequality, racial injustice, and political polarization. Peter, how are you today? I'm good. I'm in sunny California. You can actually see a little of the sun still c- coming through here. So yeah. I know the East Coast, not you guys, but the East Coast, I think is getting hit with all this snow. So I'm fortunate, yeah. I feel, uh, here. Yeah, we are, we're, we're lucky. We are in Orlando, so we're not experiencing yeah. any of that snow or any of that cold. It's a, a frigid, what, 60, Oh, it's 70? our beautiful season, right? Well, and usually it's not. Usually we don't get the pretty season until right. January, February. Right, but I think we're at like 68, 70. I mean, it's it's not so bad, but you live in you live in uh, the Bay Area, so you're yeah. pretty used to... Uh, yeah, no, we're in, the same, we're in a comparable space, but uh, it's great to be here. I'm happy to, happy to be chatting about transformation. It sounds like that's a theme you're always or frequently dip into. So I think we're, we're, we're aligned here. Yeah, it really is. And it, I think it's something that, you know, we, we've been kind of stuck in this, mo- you know, 2020 from all accounts has been a dumpster fire for most people. So looking towards the future and looking for what we, you know, what could potentially be very positive change, I think it's, it's, it's a breath of fresh air, Peter. So thanks for joining us today. Absolutely. Um, totally. So, so I just want to kick this right off by saying that, um, you know, in, in your writing, in, in, in your peace transformation, you say that the timing for the coronavirus pan- pandemic was extremely lucky. And so, you know, as mo- so many of us uh, are coming out of this dumpster fire of 2020, how on earth could you say that our timing was lucky? Well, let me put it this way. From, from the, uh, the big picture historical point of view, which is the way this series, The Transformation, which is, by the way, it's a six part series. We're in the fifth part of it now. It is just, it's been going through medium. It's on its way to being a talk, which is gonna come out next uh, year, the kicking it off. And it's ultimately the beginnings of a book, which I've done several of them before. So anyhow, there is a kind of this, this transformation. The whole idea is to think about what people literally in 2100, 80 years from now, what will they think looking back on our period of time from 2020 to what's 2050? So to them, it's going to be looking back on the way we look back on World War II or the post-war boom and that kind of stuff. And to us, of course, it's looking ahead for the next 30 years. And so from that perspective, I say the pandemic was lucky in its timing because if it had even happened just 
20 years earlier, let's just say in the year 2000 rather than in 2020, in the year 2000, the internet was such, uh, and again, I was at the early Wired Magazine in the 90s there. I mean, this is something that we were all over from a long time. But in the early, by 2000, it was really only about a third of Americans, or a third of people in North America were on the internet. And Europe less so. And then, in fact, most regions of the world basically had nobody on the internet, very little. I mean, just a smidgen of elites kind of thing. Right. Uh, and, and, uh, and yet here we are with four and a half billion people on the planet, uh, everyone like us connected with high bandwidth, able to do video able to kind of you know immediately connect when that pandemic hit if it would have hit 20 years ago we wouldn't have been able to just kickstart you know all this uh, coordination of scientists we wouldn't have been able to all do our work from home we wouldn't have been able to have kids in school you know kind of immediately gone through video and stuff we wouldn't have been able to do this even just 20 years ago now that's just one piece the other piece is 20 years ago, we were just cracking the first human genome at a cost of about $2 billion. It actually happened in 2003, and there were these two efforts, if you remember, uh, private sector, public sector. One, Anyhow, the point is, it took $2 bucks. it took a decade of work, and we finally cracked the first human genome. Well, now it takes about 1000 bucks or less, actually, to crack an entire human genome. And in fact, we're able to very rapidly and cheaply sequence, let's say, the virus that was breaking out here. And one of the reasons we got a vaccine so fast here was we were able to uh the scientific community coordinated through this internet and all these high bandwidth connections using ai and other kind of things we were able to quickly and just rapidly track the day-by-day mutations of this virus and really understand it on a level that would have been totally beyond us uh, 20 years ago so there's another box there huh it's a good thing it hit now rather than 20 years ago the third thing which i think is a bigger picture looking real quick yeah that's okay real quick just just uh i just wanted to interrupt because you said um if this were happened 20 years ago like do you think this would have been a kind of spanish flu type of situation if this happened 20 years ago or what what do you think Yes, I basically in this piece, the piece that you were referring to, uh, which is one of the the, the six of them, um, I literally say we probably wouldn't have been that much better off than in the Spanish flu. I mean, one of the reasons of the Spanish flu, they didn't know they, at that time they didn't even know what the virus was, and so they, that, they I mean, that was, was a cruder thing. They didn't have any way to coordinate globally, uh, you know, on a global pandemic or with internet, let alone you know, basically phones and stuff could barely go long distance. Anyhow, so there was, some, you know, we were in better shape than they were in some ways, but in a foundational way of how we were able to deal with this in a 21st century way, uh, there wasn't a lot different. We would have been dealing with it in 2000 in a 20th century way long distance phones and and uh and you know uh coordination that way and we would have been doing it you know with again you know modern medicine but not really understanding it at the genetic level and the level that we're able to pull right. this thing you know it probably would have taken us you know typical three or four years to do a vaccine right. anyhow the right. point is very different than that but here's the other thing i was just going to say the third piece which is which is why i said it was fortuitous if we would have hit it 20 years ago uh, when the entire global economy collapsed and let's say oil crashed, which is what we saw in the wake of this pandemic with, you know, mm-hmm. f- flights going to nothing and nobody commuting to work and all that kind of stuff, the oil price of oil crashed and the whole industry kind of buckled. We wouldn't have been able to build out of it 
with uh, the clean energies that were it's possible now. And so because solar energy 20 years ago, solar energy was such right. it was about 70 bucks a watt. And now it's about 70 cents a watt. Right. And so just simple things like driving down the price of solar panels to kind of be able to scale back up uh, on clean energy wouldn't have been able to happen. So there's a bunch of reasons that weirdly from a historical perspective and something from the future, they're going to look back and say, damn, it was good. It was 2020 and wasn't 20. 2000 or let alone right. 20, right. You know, 1980 or stuff like that. Right. I love that you said that because I, you know, I think there's this, um, you know, I, I, it's very hopeful for me because again, like as we were talking about earlier, it's like 2020 just seems like such a dumpster fire. So yeah. to be able to look back on this in five, 10, 15 years ago, you know what? Ab that was the best thing that could have happened. Alicia says the universe is always conspiring in our favor. Timing is everything, whether we know it or not. Um, it's, it's really an amazing thing and where we are and where we're headed. Um, so let, let's back up just for a second and talk a little bit about your your piece transformation um your new piece which is which is highlighted on medium is written from the perspective of a fictional character named Stuart rand a gen z writer born in the year 2000 what gave the idea to kind of write backwards what was what what was what motivated you to write this piece the way you did well, uh, several reasons, but let me, let me just kind of give you the, the bigger context of what happened here is when I was at Wired in the mid nineties, it was, I was, I don't know if you remember, Wired magazine was the first magazine to really understand the digital revolution was happening, really think, uh, very optimistically about the future coming out of, uh, what was essentially the new economy of these digital companies and, uh, thinking about the internet and the power of the internet. It was kind of the early place to do that. And I was among the early team there that was doing that. And I wrote a cover story in about the mid 90s came out about 97 um with a co-author i will say but basically i wrote it which was essentially looking ahead for the next 20 years and it was trying to say well how could these little goofball startups with names like amazon that's just selling books you know <laughs> how are they ever going to run the global economy or well, apple computer at the time by the way that the same month this cover story came out apple begged steve jobs to come back because they're about three months away from going right. bankrupt and i and in this piece i was saying well, you know, it's you, you can't really see it yet, most people. But I'm telling you, it, once you connect up all these people on the Internet and once you start scaling this up and once you, these little companies start growing, and you're going to have a different world. And so we breathe life in this story to what would happen over the next 20 years. And the way I did it was I was using it, it a story in the future was uh, it wasn't clear when he was writing it. Uh, it was kind of thought of maybe 2050 or something like that at the time. He was writing back about what happened to the story of the world from 1980 to 2020. And it was, mm -hmm. again, written in the mid-90s. So the audience in the 90s was like, they understood what had come before. And we were referencing things in the past that was common knowledge. And then we were going forward to 20 years and 25 years out. And um, anyhow, that thing was very effective at the time. And it helped people at the time really understand the potential of these little goofball companies and how mm -hmm. these things could really restructure the world. We also were talking about globalization and how China could go from at the time in the mid 90s was a knucklehead kind of developing right. a world country with 800 million peasants. And we were saying, you know, they could actually be they're going to be the next, another global superpower. Anyhow, we breathed life into this thing, which was largely prescient. And here it is 2020. And it's pretty much played out. I mean, there are some things that are off and we can kind of discuss that if we want to. But in general, the bigger story was right. And so here we are in 2020. And I thought, you know, 
what if we did this again, going out to 2050, another 30 years, roughly right. the same kind of time? Wouldn't it be helpful for people to understand how AI is going to actually play out or how genetic engineering, biological engineering is going to play out or how uh, the demographic changes in America are going to really play out or, you know, different things that would. And then in the process of this, I really I'm a positive guy. I'm an optimistic guy. Uh, I'm trying to think, you know, what's well, how could we solve these challenges? And so in thinking about that, instead of making it some dry historian of the future who you don't really know, I created a character, this guy, Stuart Red, and uh, he's telling the story at the end of his life. Uh, he's 100 years old, which, by the way, all these Gen Zers who are born in around 2000 or, you know, late 90s and early 2000s and stuff, um, they're going to live 100 years and probably let more, probably yeah. 120. The way they're thinking now is human bodies through all the, our genetic understanding, our bio, you know, our medical advances, uh, what we're learning about food and health and all that. I mean, average people will live to be 100 and be vital and they'll remember stuff and they won't be the kind of what 100-year-olds are yeah. now. So I just said, hey, he's telling the story at the end of his life, looking back and saying, what happened to America primarily? We focus on America in this series, but also the world. What happened from 2020 to 2050 and how did we solve or we call it turn the corner on climate change? Because I don't know if it'll Mm -hmm. be fully solved. How did we deal with all this income inequality and how do you deal with all the issues? Racial inequities, all these things like bursting out of the streets here in America this year. We were trying and political polarization. You know, everyone's kind of so despondent about how the country's torn apart right now. And we, I was just trying to lay out a plausible, a positive but plausible way this could actually go just to get people more um, uh, thinking more clearly about what's possible here instead of just being, you know, d- you know, caught in despair and gloom and doom and, you know, thinking the future right, is right. horrible. And so that was the idea behind it. And the device to do it is to use a, a character. And um, anyhow, that's that's why I did it. Yeah, I love it. Um, so. You talk you talk about and this is this is really fascinating because I just want to add to what you had just mentioned here in regards to your piece because you know it is things can be rather frigid when you're just looking at it like you're you're listening to a futurist predict what's going to happen or from a scientific perspective or from a technological perspective um, but after I read your piece like it was something that really just drew me in and I really just enjoyed reading it um, one of the things that you talk about is uh, the election of of Donald Trump and then the election of Biden and this in the 2020 election. Um, and you relate it to the defeat of Herbert Hoover after the Great Depression. Um, you know, as you know, FDR brought an incredibly progressive agenda to the country. Um, but many progressives, they really find Biden to be kind of neoliberal, sort of Republican light. Do you see Bi- the Biden presidency as FDR-esque coming out of this COVID crisis um, as an optimist? Like, what, what is your perspective on that? Well, it's a good question. I mean, let, let me put it this way: is what 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 uh, the story when you're talking about the next thirty years, and you're also talking about what people are going to see in twenty one hundred. Uh, you think back, okay, how would we think of looking back to the nineteen? I mean, the perspective from twenty one hundred to twenty twenty. And our, in the next 30 years is pretty much exactly what we are looking back on the 1930s, the 40s, the 50s and the 60s. So the 40 right. years there 
uh, or, or you could even say, uh, yes, that's the kind of perspective we have. So did you know, you know, you kind of know the basics of someone ran against FDR. Oh, yeah, it was Hoover. OK, you, but you don't remember every, you know, newspaper article or a controversy or, you know, right. or everything that they're fighting about. So it's kind of the broad lines story but it's the one that really matters in the end of like you remember oh i see we had this thing called the new deal oh we after the war we built this interstate highway system oh i understand this so you know we eventually got someone on the moon you know it took in by this 19 late 60s you know there's these big ideas big things that happen that you see how the country evolved so that's the kind of perspective think of it the way i'm telling this story so i get a little less into Biden and his cat, who's in the cabinet and what are the policies and the fights with the left and the right and all this stuff. Right. But, but I do think in the big picture, I mean, I could actually, we could talk about it if you want, what I think about Biden outside of this story. But I think for the, for the sense of the story, I do think that what we witnessed with the Biden election is comparable to what we saw in back in that earlier period coming off of the Hoover uh, and the kind of FDR transition. I'm not saying, I'm explicitly not saying that Biden is like FDR at that right. kind of, <laughs> kind of you don't want, uh, you don't want to go there. I guess. No, no, I'm not saying that, but I think what is, what I, it did happen. And this is a, it takes a little bit of explain to explain this, which is what really happened in terms of historical terms, uh, back in the thirties was essentially America was faced with two different visions of America. There was a very conservative kind of business oriented perspective on how to run the country, which had been going through the roaring 20s and with laissez-faire hands off kind of approaches. It led to the crash, basically, of the 1929 crash. And Herbert Hoover was a kind of a very conservative. He was the, he was a kind of it turns out the last of a line of a very conservative run of essentially presidents but uh, who through the 20s, but also um, uh, kind of a, an approach to government and approach to how to run the country was essentially let business be business and just government should just stay out of, out of everything else. Mm -hmm. what, what, what FDR did, and he was a fantastic politician, he went for four you know, terms and stuff, which is not, I mean, Biden won't even live, you know, another term or two. <laughs> so, so, so it's not going to be that character. But what the country decided was we wanted to essentially shift the politics. We wanted to get it back more thinking about how did the average person make it through the Depression. We wanted to think about strengthening government to deal with the rise of fascism and these global challenges that we have to solve. We needed America to be a leader in the world rather than kind of a isolation or being kind of a national kind of just be nationalist, you know, isolationist, which is kind of where the Republicans, the conservative Republicans of that time were. And we made a decision. We want to move in this other direction. And I think and then, of course, FDR did roll with it. And the people who rolled out of that kept going with that idea. And the post-war boom kind of had strong government high taxes moving resources through society in a different way, kind of a progressive era. You think of it the way we think of progressive as opposed to conservative. Right. And what I do think is going to be ha is going to be seen in history is I think America made that decision even though it was very close relatively speaking it wasn't a landslide in one way or the other which would have made it definitive. I think we actually made that decision. And I think what's going to happen is I think of Biden as a bridge. I don't think of him as the 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 transformational leader, but I think he was the kind of uh what what we needed to 
kind of get enough of a majority coalition saying, you know, we don't want to go in this direction of Trump. We don't want to go in this direction of isolationism. We don't want to be this pop nationalist populist thing that's comparable to, you know, uh, these other right wing folks around the world. That's not America. That's not where we want to go. We want to go in this other direction. And at the time, the guy who was the big tent, the guy who you could everyone could kind of say, yeah, he can at least turn the corner on this thing. It was Biden. But he's not the guy that's going to do it. And that's why I think Kamala and I think, uh, you know, the next generation of leaders that he's assembling, I mean, Pete Buttigieg and all kinds of people in his cabinet, I think really from the historical perspective, the the 2020s will be driven not by the Joe Biden vision, but it's essentially a next generation progressive vision, progressive in a kind of a historical terms, again, in a big picture way not not like you know because i know in within the party there's like you know medicare for all or this or is it you know defund the police or that i mean progressive there is a sense of progressive within the democrats but i think from the bigger point of view of the country or his way we look at it historically all the democrats blue america is essentially the progressive direction of where the country uh, is going to go, I would argue. Uh, and we can explain why and why this election marks it. I mean, you know, no, no one was worried about California turning red or New York. Right. Turning red. But okay. Texas, they were worried about Texas turning blue and, and Georgia did turn blue. And in right. fact, yeah. you, you guys down in Florida there, it's, it's still close. a 50 50 thing. But, you know, that, that trend is not trending the other way. It's trending away from the red creep in the country that happened in the last 40 years that was the story of the last 40 years in america was essentially more of a conservative era uh but now i think we're in a we're in essentially a different era which is this is the cusp of the era is we're watching trump kind of brought the end this is i don't know where your own politics are exactly or your listeners but i think in my opinion and strong opinion is i think trump marked the end of essentially the a conservative era that can run from Ronald Reagan, who brought it in and was at that time was very energizing and and, and really transformational in his way. And uh, but Trump kind of was the last end of that and kind of alienated a lot of the constituencies of the of the 21st century, uh, mm-hmm. young people being particularly uh, the millennial generation and, and the Gen Z's. And I think that crew uh, is now going to drive the political conversation going forward. And I think increasingly it's going to be obvious this is where we're moving in the 2020s here. And so I was just making that call because I think they're going to see that very clearly. Oh, that was the flip. The flip happened in that 2020 election. Right. And I I thought very similarly as well. Like when when we talk about uh, the the 2020 election and Biden being the uh, president elect, I think there was, was a very clear decision that we were, you know, we were moving away from the nationalist populism. Uh, but as you said, it wasn't a landslide victory. And so the fact that we are, you know, it took a crisis. It took COVID, really. I think Trump would have won the 2020 election had it not been for COVID. And so, you know, I don't see... Uh, Biden either as this FDR character, but I really appreciate the light um, the, or the fact that your piece steps back so far mm-hmm. uh, because it allows us to take this more historical view where it's not just like, you know, AOC versus the the neoliberals, like the, yeah. this narrative that it seems to be all the Democratic Party is, is talking about right now, um, which is, you know, kind of unfortunate, but I understand, you know, where it's coming from and why. We need, we need real progressive 
progressives um, that are going to, you know, move the agendas that, that we're talking about. But let's go back to your piece a little bit more, because I think that there's so much in here that inspired me about the next, you know, 10, 20, 30 years. You talk about the baby boomer, regener- uh, the baby boomer, boomer generation being mostly conservative, the millennials being far more progressive, but they're not getting, um, they're not, you know, they're not eating as in, in the way that the baby boomers were um, economically speaking. Gen Z, kind of the next group of people, the next generation that's taking the mantle of progressive values. Um, and you see them as ultimately, you see Gen Z as the ultimate, like ultimately the the transformers of, of our society, ultimately, you know, based on your piece. Um, you know, it's it's no it's it's no surprise that the older generations generally lean conservative, the younger generations lean more liberal. Why do you think Gen Z is ultimately going to be the generation that beats climate change, beats racial injustice, beats uh, income inequality? Like, what? Why do you see that being the case? Well. Uh, happy to talk about that. It's a, per, it's a great kind of, uh, point. But the first thing I want to do to kind of just talk about this generational thing is is uh, this is something I've spent a lot of time thinking about and writing about and um, working on for literally the last probably 25 years. One of the misconceptions about generations is that all generations start out more liberal and they all end up uh, conservative. That, that actually isn't the case. And there's a mm. bunch of data driven ways to explain this. But for example, the, the GI generation, the generation that won World War II and then later was like JFK was a uh, uh, was one of the uh, presidents who was a, who was a, was a GI generation. That generation uh, who came of age in the 30s and were kind of uh, the young generation for for um, uh, FDR got behind the FDR and the New Deal, and they were the ones that kept playing out with the long, you know, post-war boom. That crew voted liberal Democrat. They called them liberal at the time, but let's think of it as progressive Democrat. They voted that way their entire lives to the, right. to the end. Now, the, again, with any generation, there's always going to be differentiation. There's always some conservatives in a progressive generation, and there's always some progressives in a in a conservative generation. But overwhelm, you can most generations, all generations. From where they come of age, with how they grew up, what was the world they were in, uh, all kinds of different things, shape essentially a personality of a generation, and that personality has a political perspective, and so and that that perspective after about three elections, they say this is literally the academic stuff that gets nailed down. Is after a generation votes about three elections, they pretty much stick with the way they think like that politically political party that they've been uh, uh, kind of groomed into that they'll stick for it for life. And so, for example, the generation X, which is the generation right out, it was a small generation that came That's after the boomers. We're, we're generation X, right? You're generation X. Now you I'm pretty they, sure. I'm, right? I, yeah, I, I think so. you are. I, mean, well, I know you look bright. We're in that missing little area. Remember like 77, they call it like the star Wars generation. Right. Right. So you're set, you're 78. I'm or no, you're 77. I'm yeah. 79. Yeah. So I think we are generation X, but we're like right in between. Like we didn't, we weren't yeah. born with the internet. We were that little, you know, yeah. that little piece in between the boomer and the millennial. Yeah. So, well, a, a lot of it, again, there's always a differentiation, but the majority of gen X and this still polls, 
consistently. They came of age in the Reagan kind of era and that kind of conservative era. Yeah. Uh, they tended to be, uh, and they tended to vote more Republican and conservative. And they basically uh, were more entrepreneurial. They were all kinds of stuff. They were the people that kind of built the internet, the early internet, all kinds of stuff. And there's a lot of great things coming out of that generation. But I will say their politics, if you really look at it, they are still voting. They are the core block, essentially, for the Republicans to this day. Uh, and, and in fact, they're not changing. Uh, uh, and they didn't, they weren't that progressive in the 80s and 90s when they were kind of, uh, right. kind of you know, up. so anyhow the long and short of it is uh, that's one thing I just want to be clear is it's not that the generations change it's that they actually come of age and get kind of fixed and they go on now if that's the case um, so you're saying you're saying millennial you don't see the millennials shifting to a conservative um, no not at all. I don't. Okay. I, I don't. And in fact, it's, I'm not the only guy saying this. There's, there's a very consistent way to think about this from other. Now, now take it for the other way is the boomers. This is a good example because, you know, because everyone says, well, my parents are super, you know, progressive hippies, you know, kind of who are boomers. Right. Um, there's clearly about 40 percent of boomers who you would call, you know, progressive or liberal or Democrats. Right. But about 60 percent, the majority, which is right. kind of the overwhelming majority, tend to be more conservative and have been for many years. They were the supported. They were kind of driving the last 40 years of politics, essentially. Uh, Newt Gingrich and, you know, that whole crew and, you know, Bush. And I mean, there, a lot. There was a whole conservative thing in the boomers. So, yes, you can see others that weren't. But the dominant idea of that era was essentially uh, anti-government, pro-business, uh much of the stuff you'd associate with more of a conservative thing. Um, okay. And so, so anyhow, what I'm saying is with the millennials, you are, and you can look at it in the current polling, and you guys have probably studied this around, you know, just even this last election is, they're just overwhelmingly for, uh, you would call it progressive democratic kind of points of view. I mean, they were the Bernie right. Sanders people behind it. They yeah. were like, right. there, there's no question about climate change. They're totally into diverse society. They're, uh, they're kind of, you know, uh, anyhow, all the kind of stuff about, you know, white supremacy drives them nuts. And anyhow, they also don't have much at stake economically. They, they don't, they can't even buy right. homes in these cities. Right. So they're kind of more uh, economically open to more, uh, distributed policies and tax hire folks uh, who have more money and do more public investments. So anyhow, in general, now, again, there's a good chunk of the millennials who are not thinking that, but the majority are. So what's interesting about the political thing here is Gen Z, which, by the way, in my pieces, I, I renamed just because uh, ultimately they will, I get they're going to get renamed. Gen Z won't well, stick. Well, just like the, the millennials were called Gen Y for a while and then they right. got renamed. And so, anyhow, you can debate what the name will, but let's just call them Gen Z for now because that's what people think. Well, that I want, I want, I'd actually like for you to, I'd, I'd actually like for you to reveal the name that you give them in the article because I think it's fantastic. I call them the regeneration, as in regenerate or you know reinvent or you know you kind of renew. I mean, there's a bunch of ways you can play with that, but I call them the regeneration, R E and then capital G generation, the regeneration. And I think it's a fun name, and I think it actually is, and also there's a lot of people talking about regenerative economics and agriculture and all yeah. kinds of stuff. So there's a bunch of ways to think about that, but you know that's me playing with you know who knows what it'll be in the end. But I will <laughs> say this: I bet you for sure that generation will be named something that won't be Z. Gen X is stuck. Right. The millennials were Gen Y for a while, and then finally they became a moniker that made more sense. It's kind of felt right. better. And uh, I'm convinced it'll be the same. It's, it happens with all these uh, generations. They, no one really knows what to call them at first, and then they get a personality, and you say, oh, they're that. Anyhow, for whatever they're called, 
What's remarkable about the Gen Zers is that they're very almost perfectly aligned with the millennials. And so even though you said uh, earlier when you framed my question to me, you were saying it more about uh, Gen Z will be the generation that will kind of save the day and drive the changes of the 21st century. I actually right. think of it, I, the, the more accurate way to say the way I think of it is you're, gonna, you're watching an alignment of two very big generations that are essentially aligned in their politics. They're, they both, for example, there's no question in that, the, either in that, in almost anyone in those in, in those generations, they don't question climate change. They're not climate deniers. They're not. They're not. They 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 worry about climate change. They're also very they embrace diversity. Both those generations are about fifty percent minorities. Everybody has diverse friends and all that kind of stuff. They're not the kind of uh, unlike the boomers who basically are totally white. Basically, I mean, very few people of color in the whole boomer thing, which is why they don't have the same sensibility. But anyhow, those two generations, I'm positing in this piece or series of pieces are going to drive a more transformative agenda for uh, American politics. Because I'll just tell you this, every single year, 10, or no, every single day, let me put it this way. Every day, 10,000 boomers are retiring from the workforce. And there's a significant number, I won't quantify it, are dying every day because they're reaching that part of life in their seventies and stuff. And, and every day, uh, all these Gen X, uh, Gen Zs are graduating, are becoming a turning 18 and, right. you know, coming out of college and going into the workforce and, you know, doing the whole thing. When you get those two generations lined up and fully firing on all cylinders, which is going to happen this decade, that's going to define the agenda of this country. Uh, and I think that's something people are not anticipating. And when that happens, you will have a situation similar to what happened coming off of World War II which is essentially the great boom that came off of the war, uh, was essentially mm -hmm. driven by different attitudes towards uh, what are you going to do with you know strong government? How are you going to invest in public infrastructure? How are you going to spread the wealth differently? How are you going to support the middle class rather than the upper class? And yeah, there were a lot of principles that came out of that era that I think are going to have analogs to this one. And that's what I was doing when I laid that out. So that's yeah. a long answer, but that's kind of what I was trying to say of that. Yeah, I love it. Um so you go on to write, and this I'm going to, I'm going to quote you here, the technology world had a real opportunity to redeem itself through this crisis too, talking about COVID-19. The companies had started the previous era of the digital revolution as scrappy startups, but a handful of them ended the era as the most valuable corporations in the world. As they grew in power, they had drawn increasing criticism and eventually a public backlash in what at the time was called the tech lash. I love how you named that. Uh, the pandemic opened a path for them to provide crucial technology and show real leadership by letting go of their monopolistic business models and returning to the roots of open inter interoperable decentralized systems. They also had an opportunity to use the economic heft to pioneer new ways of treating workers and communities and help shape a new form of stakeholder capitalism, which they did. So, now, this is an incredibly hopeful perspective. The current sentiment toward social media companies and big tech is of uh, extreme suspicion with money driving every activity and nothing socially positive uh, about social media. They tend to behave like monopolies. How do you reconcile your extremely hopeful outlook on these tech companies and this potential for new capitalism with how people currently feel about uh, you know these companies and um, you know government are you know, 
know, our government is going after a lot of these companies for antitrust and they're trying to, you know, force them to do the right thing. What makes you think they're just going to do the right thing? Well, uh, the short answer is they're not going to just do it. There's going to be pressure. <laughs> okay. but, but let, but let me let me do this. Let me let me let me step back for this for a second. So, and, and you know, I'm laying out my my perspective here, my cards. Um, right. But I, but I I came out to Silicon Valley and the San Francisco Bay Area literally uh, kind of mid '90s in the early days of the internet. I mean, literally, we were trying to explain you know what's email and what's the web and you know that kind of level stuff to folks. And so, and because of the situation of San Francisco and Wired and all that kind of stuff, I, I've been, you know, uh, privileged or something, or you could say lucky at some level, to have spent a lot of time with a lot of tech people and, and a lot of founders okay. and a lot of famous people and a lot of people that have gone from, you know, goofball, you know, you know, coders to like billionaires, right? Right. And um, and I would say, and this, I'm not the only guy to say this, is that. Um, uh, that they uh, they don't know. I mean, that the, the transformation ha in that industry happened so fast that they didn't even know what hit them. I mean, at, right. at some yeah. level, they essentially were literally just knucklehead goofball coders and idealistic young people and all this in the 90s. And even in the 2000s, you know, remember the whole dot-com crash? It just it decimated the whole tech world. And everyone was just picking up the pieces in the early 2000s. And um, these companies, you know, they they loved what they were doing and they loved, they wanted to change the world and we wanted to kind of, you know, they had all that stuff. They did also want to make money. But, you know, it wasn't like their whole idea was just all about money and we'll screw everybody and we don't right. care. It's they actually did have a lot of idealism and they had a lot of sense uh, of what's going on. And so you watch this thing happen and that idealism, you know, just fly, go back just five years, folks. I mean, the American public loved the tech company. Right, 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 right. People like people love their technology. They loved, oh my God, Apple is awesome. And, you know, oh my God, and Google, can you can just put in a word and find everything like, oh right. my God, and Amazon's giving me stuff home. It's like I, I can shop for anything. I mean, for just put it in context, which is the backlash only happened when they got so successful that right. they ended up dominating the entire global economy and their, their valuations went from, you know, healthy companies, you know, in comparison to the oil industry or financial industry or Wall Street. I mean, you know, there were comparable powers that be out there, right? And then and now they're just like bigger than that. So basically, when you become that new, that powerful and that wealthy and that, uh, you know, kind of lucky at some level. And in such a short period of time. In such right. a short period of time, everybody hates you. Of course, everybody, yeah, I mean, everyone yeah. got to kill you, basically. So, so there's a level of this, which is just like whatever industry is going to go through that is going to be feared and hated very quickly. And so, so there's a kind of a thing that just happens when you grow that fast. And I would say internally, these same people that started 20 years ago, I gave you this little comparison of just 20 years ago, you know, what would have happened if COVID hit just 20 years ago, you know, Jeff Bezos was literally worth barely nothing, you know? And mm -hmm. uh, I'll just tell you, I was, I mean, I was at Burning Man. He was like in my camp. He crawled out of his tent one morning and it was like this <laughs> dude, just as like normal dude, you know, kind of like, who is this guy? And his, the kid, his wife was there. In fact, it was funny. He was all outfitted in an 
REI kind of outfit of um, kind of they just bought all this new equipment to kind of come. To <laughs> Everybody was kind of like, who are these guys? Oh, he runs this thing called Amazon. OK, that's cool. Uh, anyhow, the point is. Um, so they're just normal people, right? And then now they're running the world. So, um, so anyhow, there is a thing about those same brains, those same people are, are kind of gone through. Now, the other thing that's going on is the tech industry isn't just run by a few entrepreneurs, right? They have this these uh, you know young people who who flock to San Francisco from not just all over the country but all over the world, and they're well, I mean, yeah, they're into making money, but they're also really idealistic, and they're yeah. horrified, frankly, that the you know Facebook is being used to like you know genocide on the other side of the planet i mean who's happy about that so anyhow there is a kind of a mortification going on here so what i'm just laying out here is from what i'm seeing from inside and also from the outside what i think is going to happen in the next decade here is you're not going to see a fight to the death of, of tech fighting every step of the way and you know death, death you know to the last minute uh i think they're actually going to be open to a regulation they're going to be open to you know things that kind of let them be less responsible for everything now some of them like facebook might hang on to the bitter end and might might have to be you know broken up or you know something that's going to have to send a, a lesson from the outside which i think is healthy you know society should not be run by corporations it should be a collective government should set the tone and you know if we have to break up some fine if we have to regulate some fine if we have to kind of find some great that happens and i think that's healthy but i will say this is i think the tech company the tech world is going to be a more uh constructive partner in creating this world mm. solving climate change dealing with inequalities and stuff and i think there's a lot of signs already kind of doing that certainly as compared to other industries so just let's put it in context is like the oil industry, you know, is let's say another comparable big industry. Well, they're still, you know, fighting climate denial and they're basically, you know, right. trying to like undermine everything. Is like, are those guys better or worse than tech? No, tech is better in that way. They're at least trying to do some of the right things. Wall Street, you know, it's like those dudes have been overcompensated to just crazy extremes and the billionaires are kind of ruining half of our, you know, the pop, you know, the kind of the society, the social fabric by all these fabulous things. Now, some of those billionaires are tech people, but a lot of those people are like plowing it back into other stuff. But basically wall street is another industry that, you know, give me a break. It's like how much, how superior is them to like the tech world? So I think over right. time you're going to see that there are new and a young and an emerging kind of industry, powerful industry, just like, past piece parts of history we watch you know standard oil and oil companies kind of run shit and be the rob robber barons for a while the railroad yeah. companies were the big up-and-comers and they you know everyone hated them for a long time and you know there's these once you kind of get an industry that goes that kind of huge and powerful it's always going to get a backlash but if we do the right thing from the outside government and others and i think there's going to be a lot more goodwill internally than you think they're not going to fight this to the death is my opinion i think they're actually going to understand with all these lawsuits and break up right. and trust and people hate them and they go to a cocktail party and everyone says you work for <laughs> we hate you it's like they're not they're gonna not want to live in that world so that's that's that and i will say one last thing about this which is a bigger picture way to think about capitalism and stakeholder capitalism is to be fair to them and i'm not kind of just purely just defending this but to be fair they were small companies 
coming into a system that incentivized all the returns to go to shareholders. Right, right. The rules of capitalism. That was the rules of the game. That's how the business was played. So when these guys started forming companies, and they're almost all guys, um, they were just saying, okay, those are the rules. We'll, we'll do those rules. And, and, but, and they're competitive, and they fought, and boom, they ended up with these companies that supercharged, you know, returns to their shareholders. But, uh, but I don't think they're necessarily way to that. I think if we actually change the rules around things and uh, they wouldn't be, you know, okay, fine. We'll work in a different, I mean, I think, you know, they're going to resist it at some level, but I think they would come around to evolving the rules of the game of capitalism to spread the wealth differently, to make sure that, you know, only the founders and the VCs and the shareholders get, you know, engorged with this wealth. I think they know there's plenty of wealth to move through. And eventually I think they could go come around. And that's kind of what happened. One last point about this, you know, the auto industry, for example, coming off World War II was essentially the tech companies of that age. You know, right. they were super powerful company. You know, they just built tanks and planes and, you know, the cars and were just starting to open up with the interstate highway. But they basically realized that they had to cut a deal with labor and they had to play ball with the United States government. And they basically did that by creating the kind of labor kind of commitments that, um, became the norm for all of America. But, you know, like there was no vacation before the, you know, post-war boom. There was no, you know, merely weekends off. You never got a pension. You know, you didn't get okay. uh, all these things that we take as the norms now in American right. society, essentially not driven by government. Government did not force that. It was essentially the tech titans of that time in that case, auto industry, basically thought in their interest to cut a deal with labor and just say, okay, cool. We, there's enough to go around here. You guys will pay you well. We'll give you cost of living periods. You know, there was a negotiations and, you know, and the unions had to fight for it too. But in general, they came around to it because they realized the long-term play was more interesting and, and, and better for everybody. I think tech is going to see it that way in the next 10 years here. And I think we're going to watch a, essentially a social contract kind of deal being dealt with this and uh that's idealistic but i think it's worth uh thinking about before we get too freaked out yeah no i, I, I yeah no i absolutely agree i think i think it's definitely worth contemplating and thinking about and trying to figure out you know again you know you said that you know the labor had to fight you know, to get those things. Mm -hmm. But eventually those organizations, those companies realized that if they were going to be successful, move forward, grow, and they needed the, they needed their workforce to be engaged, to be positive, to be energetic and to be focused. And it's very difficult to do that when you're, you know, you're treating your labor force like uh, shit. Yeah. Right. Well, um, I'll, I'll, I'll just make one other point about that is once the deal was cut amongst the leading companies at that time, which had the resources and all that to do it generously, which was the auto industry. That model became a model for all industries almost. Right. And then it did get reinforced by the U.S. government that, you know, you had to, you know, guarantee vacation and you did pay overtime and you had to. Those became laws, but they were not started as laws imposed on the leading companies, the tech companies at that time. They were essentially modeled after the innovations that that tech world, the auto industry had done with labor. And so it was not just, oh, the tech people did well, the auto industry did well. Everybody did well. We're all kind of a product of that generous kind of reworking of the social contract, the labor contract of the essentially that came off the 40s into the 50s. 
And I think that's the same thing here is I think what's going to have to get innovated was not just, okay, you work for Google, you're going to get a good deal. You know, that's pretty clear now. A lot of people do that. But I think it's going to model that all these little companies then will start thinking, okay, well, yeah, that's how we got to deal with it. Okay, maybe a worker has to be on the board. Okay, maybe we have to give equity to contract workers, not just, you know, other stakeholders. Anyhow, there's a bunch of things you could imagine going in detail, but I'm saying it won't be just from their, them and their employees. It'll model for the rest, and uh, right. that's where I think potential goes. Right. Anyhow. Um, it, th- this is really interesting here. One of the things, one of the predictions uh, that you make is that Amer- the American heartland, these the red states in America, um, you see them going blue over the next 10, 15 years. Um, one of the things that, that, that made me question is, okay, well, w- w- why do you think that is? And one of the things that you kind of hit on in your article or in your piece is that people can now work from anywhere. Right. And so this, this, um, you know, there's all this undervalued land. People are able to work from anywhere. Um, you're going to see people in these higher uh, cost of living states moving to these rural communities. Like, are, are you thinking that's the sole reason or do you think there are multiple reasons where you're actually going to see this happen? And will it be an actual rejuvenation of the heartland or will it be more like you'll just see like giant tech centers pop up? Good question. Um, but, and I have a couple of good ways to answer that actually. So, um, there's several things going on here. Um, and I'm actually going to draw off of, uh, another series I did in medium, uh, a couple of years ago, which you, you, you and I have chatted about before this, uh, it was called California's the future. Right. I did a piece about, uh, a series of four articles, uh, long kind of magazine, like articles similar to this package of six stories, a magazine, like stories I'm doing called the transformation. Now, uh, anyhow, the, the gist of that was essentially telling the story that, um, California has always kind of prefigured American politics by about 15, 10 to 15 years. There's a way to analyze this. I can explain it later. But in general, think of it is that California tends to uh, experience the future first. And it, it tends to be extremely uh, entrepreneurial and kind of innovative. And so a lot of things uh, happen there that kind of travel through the country differently. I mean, you can see it with uh, technologies, obviously. We've seen it many times. You can see it with cultural trends. You can see it with a bunch of social stuff. And a lot of things that America's experience has kind of come out of the California stuff. Just just to say that. I know you're in Florida, and I know that it's bugs right. the East No, no, people, no. It, it, it sheds a lot of light on my childhood because I was born in California, in San Diego, and then my parents yeah. got the bright idea to move back to the Midwest when I was seven years old, and I was a very, very unhappy child. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You, um, you had but, you had you had a taste. You had a taste of that kind of like innovation, freedom, cultural you know cultural opportunity and awareness. And and real quick, I just I just want to um, add this to your point. And it's very interesting because California has always been um, you know you, you've always had New York, which is a cultural hub, but California has always been kind of this. Um, it's it's almost like a, a testing site when it. Yeah. 
comes to new cultural ideas. Um, you know, you talk about the summer of love, you talk about all these different things. Um, you know, they really, they really took their stride in California. Um, one of the interesting things also that I, that I noticed in your Ted talk was you talked about even the, the Republican, the resurgence of conservatism came out of California. And I think a lot of Gen Zers and millennials may not realize that, that, that that Ronald Reagan, uh, was elected governor and then he made it to the national stage. And like, there was this real, uh, resurgence of conservatism in California that then spread across the country, um, after, you know, years after FDR, um, I, I just find that completely yeah. fascinating. Well, well, yeah. So, so the quick version of that, which is absolutely true. So, 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 California has this prefigures the future America in a bunch of ways, including. Are you saying what? What are you saying? Prefigurative. Prefigure. They, they prefigure oh, the future. Okay. Me, meaning they kind of do it first. They do the first draft, and then it gotcha. comes the rest of the country. But yeah, <laughs> Reagan's a great example. People forget this. California was a totally red state. It, it essentially mm-hmm. invented modern conservatism. Uh, Reagan was uh, governor in the you know '60s with his kind of right you know kind of more conservative stuff, and you know he became president in '80s. So like you know so he it was basically like a 15 year kind of time delay from him becoming. Uh, by the way, and before that, California had been very progressive, kind of, and then Reagan brought this conservative thing. Then a bunch of stuff happened. The tax revolt, everyone, you know, the cut taxes kind of frenzy, that all started in California. It was a big tax revolt of 78, uh, 1978, and eventually went national. And, but it takes about 10, 15 years to filter out to where everybody in, you know, Georgia and, you know, you know uh, Wisconsin and everybody else is doing this stuff. So there's this time delay thing. Well, so, so it was red. Then it became red and blue together paralyzed kind of like America's day. This happened about right. the kind of late nineties and the early two thousands, where it's basically a failed state. Nothing could happen. We couldn't pass budgets. We couldn't solve anything. It was a 50, 50 state, which is, you know, what is that? That's kind of when, where the U S has been right again, right. 15 years late. What right. happened in California though, is starting in 2005, literally 15 years ago, there was essentially a Waterloo. The last, was the last stand of California. Uh, I'm, I'm here in California, so I can kind of tell this story. Uh, it was the last stand of, of conservatism. And it, it basically uh, was also the beginnings of the progressive kind of California. And so it's only in the last 15 years that California has turned into this deep blue thing that everyone says, oh, it's this crazy kind of progressive thing. And thinking that it's always been that way. No, it's not true. It went through this big change. Why? They actually realized, hey, climate change is real. We got to start doing stuff about this. They realized they had a more diverse society. They had, you know, more than 50 percent of the of their society were people of color. And they're saying, you know, instead of, you know, we can't be like we got to embrace it. We got to start dealing with this. And so, like, they kind of decided, you know, we're going to do something about this and and a variety of all kinds of stuff that, you know, we can't we got to start taxing the rich again. You know, we got to spread the wealth differently. Anyhow, a bunch of progressive things started in that thing now nationally. The Republicans, for example, say, oh, that crazy California world. It's like that thing happened in response to the realities of the 21st century and a bunch of new things and the demographic changes of the country, including younger people coming to that state and all that stuff. Anyhow, what I'm saying is this has now happened without people really realizing it's happened through the United States. Now, and and we kind of touched on it a little bit earlier in this conversation. But let's just review here for folks a second. What ha- what really happened in this election was the Democrats have swept through the entire Southwest now of the United States. That region, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, Nevada, was all conservative. 
the senators, the governors, everybody, and they right. voted it in, in all the presidential elections. And what happened this year? All of them were blue. And all the senators were blue, by the way, too. They've essentially now, that same phenomenon that had happened in California is now sweeping through the Southwest. And it already is sweeping into Texas. I'm predicting by 2024, it's probably Texas is going to be a true battleground. It's very possible to flip presidentially into the blue camp in 2024. When that happens, it's game over. There's no way, zero way. The Republicans can win without Texas, which is a right. huge, uh, I mean, California's bigger, but without Texas, they, they can't go anywhere. And and it, it flipped uh, the deep south. It, it flipped uh, Georgia. That's unprecedented. I mean, it's like right. that hasn't happened forever, right? So I'm just saying what's happening in the country is happening demographically. It's happening as, as, through the, the people of color, through younger people, through, you know, facing up to climate change, all these kind of issues that essentially are kind of more uh, uh, the inequality saying just getting to the point where people have to deal with it. So anyhow, that's happening, whether you like it or not. And it's coming around to us. And so if you look again from the future, when they see the big, long strokes of things, they're going to look back and say, ah, that's what happened. Uh, we just saw kind of that thing that happened in California now when nationally started to go. And then that thing will lock in, in my opinion, It'll lock in essentially a 60% majority that allows you to do things with super majorities of legislatures like California, right. for example. There's no, there, there is literally not one single Republican in statewide office. And there is super majorities in the state house and the state Senate, which can basically whatever the Democrats want to do, they can do now. And it's a very progressive state. So it's starting to do come crazy big things, right? That is going to happen to America, I'm thinking, over time. Now, it's still going to have, you know, it's hard to know whether not every region is going to turn blue. But I mean, anyhow, the point is there'll be a 60 percent majority and that'll allow the country in the coming decades to instead of fighting over everything. And, you know, one guy gets in and they, you know, Trump comes in and he undoes everything that Obama does and Biden undoes everything. That's what happens when you get split government, 50-50 world, nothing gets done. Once you go into supermajorities, or when I say supermajorities, it's not crazy numbers. It's just 60% right. of the people say, we're going right. to do this. We're not going to fight about it anymore. It's like right. climate change is real. We're not going to have this fucking fight. We've had it for 25 <laughs> years. It's like, we're not going to have this fight anymore. It's just nuts. And, right. and anyhow, it, that's what happened in California. It's like, nobody, like, it's not just a joke. You know, like, nobody's like, what do you mean there's no climate change? Like, everybody. Like, it's just the people talking like that, they're in this little kind of corner. We just say, okay, fine, you people do that thing. It's like, we don't even listen to you anymore. Anyhow, that's happening, going to happen nationally, I would say, in that kind of level. And so what's going to do is clear the space for transformational change, big changes, long-term investments, you know, things multi-decade kind of plays. And that's the kind of thing we're going to need to solve these challenges that we've talked about climate change, changing the nature of capitalism. I mean, these things, you know, getting beyond political polarization, these are huge changes, but there we have them in our ability to do this now because now it's not going to happen literally this week because, you know, oh, Mitch McConnell might still control the Senate by one vote, you know, whatever. That might happen for another year or two or something, even of just craziness like that. But ultimately, the writing's on the wall. And I will challenge anyone on the other side you give me one good scenario of how red america is going to roll back to a 60 percent majority against uh the coast blue america states 
the urban centers with all the dynamic economy, young people growing in numbers, people of color, which aren't going home. They're not going back to their shithole countries, all that kind of stuff. That's just not going to happen. That world is gone. That world is done. It's a 20th century world. There's a crew that's hanging on to it. They're freaked out. The future's coming. Game over, folks. Yeah, I always thought I I always thought this was the you know Trump was like the last throes of this uh, you know uber nationalism white supremacy um, kind of movement. I always I always just kind of felt that in my bones, Um, you know. And it was it was a little scary that he could have won again in 2020, but he didn't. And I really think again going back to the previous conversation, I think COVID had a big you know a a part in that. but, you know, the fact that things are like you, we can't get anything done right now. Like it's it's almost impossible. And, and we have all of the, you know, the Democrats are at each other's throats about Biden's cabinet and this that, and the other. And so I don't want to spend a lot of time in the microcosm because I think that this conversation is so valuable to me. And I think probably our listeners, because we are talking bigger picture and we are talking visionary stuff. And let's figure out, you know, where we're actually going um, over the long term. Yeah, and we, we're going to have to fight the little fights in the meantime. But I think it's important to. Uh, to kind of scale back and think about this bigger perspective. So I want to go back to an, another piece of your writing. You say, if only we could have seen back then what everyone today in 2100 can see with long lens of historical perspective. The 2020s brought the start of a massive tech boom carried out simultaneously in three different directions. Infotech roughly doubled its reach in the space of one decade, adding 3 billion people to the internet by 2030. At that point, everyone in the world was connected via the internet to the global economy and society and to ubiquitous AI technology. Few anticipated how AI-enabled simultaneous language translation would accelerate innovation by cross-connecting people and ideas from every corner of the planet. I literally have goosebumps as I'm reading this. <laughs> this idea, so, so basically what you're saying is that this idea that AI and the technology that we're, that we're we're evolving is going to give us the ability to plug in all of these people, these brilliant minds. Like I think one of the most underestimated things about what, you know, the underdeveloped world is the amount of talent, the amount of intelligence, the amount of passion, the amount of interest, the amount of exceptionalism that's going to be flowing out of, of what we quote unquote call the third world. We just had a, a um, uh, an interview on Tuesday with a gentleman out of Sri Lanka. His name is Indy. And like this dude is so fucking talented and intelligent and like there are so many intelligent people who just aren't connected yet but by time they get connected it's going to be powerful and then but you add in this extra layer of artificial intelligence we're going to have the ability for me to be having a conversation with somebody like you who's in um in a country that does not speak english we're going to be able to immediately in real time have this conversation and be working together you know you can do it on a cool podcast or you can be working on a vaccine or you can be working on the next technological innovation the power and growth of that plus quantum computing i mean my mind is literally scrambled with the possibilities that we're about to see over the next 10 years it's 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 phenomenal isn't it no no i love it i love i love your energy and i love i love i love how you go there because i i'm the same way i just at some level it kind of drives you it just 
energized you. Yeah, but this I'm is- like, I'm itching, man. I'm itching. It's like, it's so close. It's so Chrissy, fucking close. Kristen, you gotta keep really itching. She, she, well, um, she's, going to, she's going to grab me another cocktail to keep me under control, so uh, it should be okay. Actually, I'm enjoying, <laughs> yeah, I'm enjoying my beer. Um, <laughs> the, the, I loved how you brought this up, because you're right, you can go into politics and it drives, you know, you can go deep on politics. My own view of history and I'm a guy who spent a lot of time thinking about history, long view history. I'm, I'm a big history buff, as well as a future kind of guy. But, um, uh, you know, technologies, to really understand what goes on in a society, and, and you really have to kind of start off, what were the technologies they had? Like, what are right. the tools they had? Like, so if you right. go back to the Roman Empire, okay, what did they have then? You go back further, you know, you have to figure out, did they have fire? Did they know how to do bronze? You know, you know, you got to go back to the Enlightenment. You kind of go, well, did they even understand electricity? Actually, they didn't. But, you know, they did understand, the, you know, the earth went around the sun, you know. I mean, right. that was a big move. Yeah, there's just a level of kind of understanding where people are. But also for technologies, like what could people do? And so I think in the future, they'll look back and they'll say, okay, one way to start thinking about that is you got to think, well, what are the technologies they have? You know, what and the kind of, I guess you could say their scientific understanding, but I would just say, start with the tools. And people today really underestimate or underappreciate the unbelievable power of these tools. So let me just put it this way. In 2000, I mentioned to you, basically no one on the planet except for about a third of Americans were online, right? And now we've got about uh, 40%, uh, 60% of the planet is online uh, in the space of 20 years, which in a world historical context is mind blowing. It's, 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 bl- it's a blink. It, it, it's, it's a blink in the eye and you kind of go, oh, so you went from a place where no one could talk instantaneously with everybody to four and a half billion people could do that. Wow, that's a big deal. <laughs> so, but it's going to get even a bigger deal because it is inevitable. I call them the inexorables, but you, this one you can say is inevitable. That basically everybody on the planet will be connected over high bandwidth connections to powerful devices like smartphones and stuff that will by that time, you know, by the end of the decade, let's say by 20, 2030, you know, it'll be literally nothing. And if they'll be so cheap that we'll just give it to people that are really dirt poor. But yeah, the point being is you're going to have 8 billion people on the planet who are accessed with high bandwidth connections over the world from a prime and 30 years before that 2000, nobody was. That's in the world history. That's like a freaking big deal, right? So that's one thing. The second thing, which is amazing about it, is the evolution of AI on top of that, which is you will able to, you know, not only are we just going to be able to just connect, which is a big enough deal to do video like this, right? But then you'll be able to actually this simultaneous language transition is a huge deal for a bunch of reasons. But one reason it's happening. The fastest computers now, the most powerful computers are outperforming uh, humans in, in natural language translation in real time. So computers can do that. They're, they happen to be very powerful now, but so, but you know, that always happens in tech and just let it play out. Anyhow, by the end of this decade or even mid-decade or something, we'll be getting a pretty, pretty workable. 
that you're right. I could be speaking in Farsi from Iran, or I could be speaking Chinese from Guangzhou, or I could be talking, you know, Swahili, you know, from Kenya or something. And, you know, you would totally understand me. Right. I mean, I mean that, that's, that's awesome. a kind of a bizarre thing. And you go traveling, you know, you have a little earbud like this and you'll just go traveling in an Indian bazaar and you'll talk to the person and, and you'll totally hear you and you'll hear them and you'll just kind of like, oh, cool. You know, and you'll have this conversation. Anyhow, that just alone is a big deal. But innovation, if you go one, one notch deeper, what is innovation? Innovation is essentially a product of the cross fertilization of ideas and many different, particularly multidisciplinary perspectives on a problem. So often people get stuck in their silos of kind of, um, uh, you know, their expertise. They go deep into a field. That's the way most people kind of do their careers or well, what they and do. And, 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 and let, me just add, this, let me let me let me just add to that. Yeah. So, yeah, sorry. Just let me let me add to that, because that's that's something that's been uniquely, I, I would say, like European and American. Like we have the specialty, um, the specialty position is like is an outgrowth of the Industrial Revolution. Right. It's like you focus yeah. on your you focus on your nut and you screw your nut or you screw your bolt or you, you know, you do this and you do that and you just focus. And it's like we have neuroscientists and we have, you know, yeah. um, you know, childhood psychologists. And the biggest problem we have with all those inter you know all those domains is that they don't talk to each other well so i just wanted to lay i just wanted to lay the context on what you're saying because uh hopefully you have you were getting to a solution <laughs> well no well no what 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 what, what, what I, I actually am getting to a solution right. is, is is you know when you actually have innovation in a company i mean i, I you know a lot of what i do now is i'm working inside companies and all kinds of stuff and seeing helping people see cross connect across fields i'm a very Sounds like you're like this too. I'm a generalist. I'm a guy yeah. curious about a million things. I'm always kind of cross connecting people. I know people in all kinds of fields. That's what I do. I interview folks and events and all kinds of stuff. The way you kind of seem to do with this podcast. Anyhow, that's they're, they're, we're kind of a minority, but there's a value in that. But but what comes out of the cross connects is innovation, new ideas. Right. It's like oh, the physicist sees it from the neurosciences, and they go oh, well that means we can do this. Anyhow, that's just generally what the innovation is. Now, the second thing I want to say, though, which is really important about where we are in history, is his, is innovation has gone from an art, like, wow, you know, a Michelangelo or an Einstein or somebody just, you know, genius or something, or, oh, you know, an art, but now to a science. So, so innovation has gone from an art to a science. And so, meaning, in the last 20 to 30 years, businesses have kind of studied it so deeply and academia has studied it so deeply that we kind of get now how to accelerate innovation, how innovation works, how to scale mm. up innovation. There's a whole thing called design thinking. I don't know how some people maybe have heard that on, on this thing. Anyhow, there's a bunch of ways. There's books now about iterative processes and prototyping and how fast, you know, fail fast. And anyhow, there's a bunch of ways that particularly the tech world is all all over this thing. So what's happened now is at a time when everyone's connected, you're cross-connecting everybody. We learn how to, we know how to innovate better than ever before. It's like a science rather than it's art. We have no idea what at some level, how much crazy stuff is going to get figured out and, 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 and amazing innovations are going to happen probably for good and bad. It's not all going to be good in the right. next uh, coming decades. And so I think it's that thing that people are underappreciating is, is the level of innovation we're heading into. Now people talk about, Oh, time's accelerating and things are happening fast, but this is true. And I think we have to really get ready for it. And I think here's my two points that I would basically tell the people here. And, and, and um, I've been developing a talk that's going to come out 
I'm going to be doing uh, actually online streamed for people um, in early February, which which is another matter. But basically, I'm, I've come up with two things. I've been thinking is never bet against human ingenuity. Ne- never, un- you know, never underestimate what human beings, human ingenuity can come up with. And also never underestimate the power of new tools. I mean, I think these two things together, if we really think about it, so you people are wringing their hands, oh, we'll never solve climate change. Oh, we'll never solve this. We'll never solve that. And everyone's in gloom and doom and it's like fearing the future, all that stuff. Well, the problem is... Uh, uh, one of the things is it's like there are so many we're, we're entering a period of incredible potential based on our ability to basically innovate and leverage these insanely powerful tools. And I think that's something that um, we should take heart in. Uh, we should be wary of because, you know, things can be innovated in difficult directions, too. But in general, I think it's something that people don't even haven't even wrapped their heads around. And I, that's why I think. Um, I'm very bullish and very that have a very can-do attitude that I think we're going to actually solve these big challenges, which is really the name of the game now. It's climate right. change. Yeah, Mike's waiting on the replicator. I, I believe that. <laughs> I, I believe that this is this is a fundamental belief of mine. Is that if we, when we come up with the replicator, when we actually invent the replicator, and you know, because I, I think this is something interesting that we talk about a lot on this show, is that we do have the resources to feed the world. Like the resources are there. We just don't. Have the, we don't have the distribution networks, and we don't have the incentives. Right? You yeah. need to to get people to do things. You need to incentivize them, and in order to in order to execute, you need you need an infrastructure and, and we just don't have that but once we get the replicator <laughs> then we can actually there's no doubt that that we can that we can you know that that scarcity will be gone and once scarcity is gone you really don't you don't have the sorts of um you know con- need needs for control that that dominate uh darker darker times and darker politics um that being said Kristen always makes fun of me because she says well can the replicator replicate a puppy and- it's an old <laughs> joke with a friend of mine. The point was uh, that if, if the replicator can replicate yogurt, then it should be able to replicate a puppy. Right, live cultures. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I, I, I do want to, and this is this is one thing that I really appreciated about your writing, that you don't um, that you don't just paint this kind of utopic um, socialist view, and, and, and I'm very for like social programs. I'm, I'm, I'm a very um, progressive person. I, I don't believe there's any, re- I don't think you should like, I don't think in order to get the human sphere, spirit to thrive, like they should be at the threat of starvation. Like, I don't think that's true. I don't think that's necessary. Um, I think that's a bullshit argument that Reagan sold to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I do think is that, you know, capitalism has a fundamental and profound incentive program that, that pushes people um, to, to make money. So one of the things I appreciate is that you don't ignore capitalism in your writing um you don't make really make up this utopian dreamland you discuss uh you actually wrote it here we also understand how close the people back then came to failing for every two steps forward they take one step back every new technology calls new problems that need to be solved that's always the way change uh, change of that scale happens i've always been an optimist and focused on the positive so i'll steer clear of recalling the many disasters and stick to the mostly positive story that prevailed in the end but i think w- one of the you know interesting things 
things here is as you have, as you scale, as you change, as you innovate, you also create problems. But those problems actually create new industries, new niches, new jobs, new opportunities, new invest, you know, new opportunities for investment. Um, what do you think? I know you steered away from it, but what do you think are some of our greatest challenges over the next 30 years? Well, the three, the, 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 well, there's four, I would say. If you had to just take stock in this year, basically they all broke out. Um, but, 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 I mean, they've happened before, but I'm saying, if you had to say, what are the things, if you're an American 2020, what are the things we have to get a handle on? I'd say there's four. One, and this year brought them all out in very dramatic fashion. One is we got to get a handle on climate change. And, and it, you know, it, it's, you know, I mean, California here, we just had this horrendous year of wildfires. Oh my I God. mean, it's, so it's, it, it's, and it's, you know, more to come. And it's just, you know, and also it wasn't just here. It was up and down the whole West Coast. It was, mm-hmm. into, you know, I mean, anyhow, and you get hurricanes and all this stuff. Anyhow, this is, it's gotten beyond the play point of like, you know, oh, well, wouldn't it be cool if we did something about this or you know it, it's it's a thing that has to get solved and and i and the series in some respects is literally trying to show and the, and the story actually if you really get into it the fourth episode essentially a series of, of a fourth story essentially tells how we actually what i call turn the corner on climate change because i think it's actually to the point now where we're we're gonna have to we can mitigate the worst parts of climate change but we can't solve it like completely and go back to how it was in 1950 or something. I think we're going to have to mitigate the worst of it. And I think we're going to adapt to it better or worse. And, but I call it turning the corner. We're going to essentially do a lot more than we are now. And we're going to essentially make it better and be able to do with it, uh, thrive in it going forward. That's one challenge. Second challenge, I think is uh, we have to essentially uh, rework, I would call it capitalism, uh, not not in a kind of the classic socialist Marxist thing, which is the right wing is kind of going batching on. It's what's happened about capitalism, even the people, I mean, Davos and all these people, the World Economic Forum, they're all trying to talk, they're all talking the same problem, which is, there's two fundamental problems with capitalism right now. One is it doesn't account for the externalities that are created in an economy like pollution and, and in particular climate, uh, global warming pollution. Right, like no, no carbon tax. There's, there's yeah, no, ne- there's, there's no negative financial, uh, constraint when it comes yeah, to pollution. It, it, yeah. In fact, it's, it's in fact, there's, it's, it's, you don't have any, you don't pay any price right. for it. So yeah, point is that's, unsustainable that's why they call it sustainability it's unsustainable system it'll blow the pants pieces and we'll all be living in water world and all this stuff we're talking about second you guys particularly in florida you guys you guys in florida are like really gonna be hurting at that we're we're actually we're right in the middle so we might actually end up with like beachfront property we we actually yeah so so that's that's exactly right so so we're in orlando so we're actually banking on that so we know we're 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 investing for the future (laughs) all right let's just sit that aside about your personal situation but there's uh, but the unsustainable so it's unsustainable for capitalism for one reason is externalities of pollution particularly and climate change uh, second reason though is unsustainable be- for social reasons it, it is not spreading the wealth uh, broad, broadly enough and deeply enough in our societies be, and it is creating essentially a backlash of you could say historic proportions which is what happens in these situations where uh, they're getting increasing numbers of people that are not invested in 
sustaining the system and, and, and it's not working for them and it's working for people at the extremely top and even just you could say the top 5% or mm-hmm. you know maybe you could even say the 10% of people on the planet might, might have some reason to kind of hey this is kind of working for me although it's really from a global point of view probably closer to more 5 or even 2 or 3 uh, but anyhow, the point being is you can't have a system like that that's going to work over the next centuries, you know, or a century or even decades that that, that doesn't deal with that issue. And then even the capitalists are figuring this out. And it's just why you're watching populist nationalism all over the place. You're watching, you know, the millennials talking about, you know, socialism and now and, and in ways that hadn't been talked to for, for generations. Anyhow, the point is it's getting to be unsustainable. That has to get solved. Solvable. There's a lot of ideas out there how to do it. But anyhow, that's all. Third thing is we have to get past this political polarization. You can't have a situation where basically all the liberal democracies in the world, West Europe, Western Europe, America, and you know even in places, uh, other places, are just getting debilitated. They can't make long-term investments. They can't deal with climate change aggressively. The only country that's kind of doing it right now is is authoritarian, you know, dictatorships like, uh, you know, China and stuff who can say, OK, we're going to move everybody from here to there. We're going to scale up, you know, solar and we're going to basically make electric trains to connect. I mean, you know, they can do it, but you don't want to live in that society. But anyhow, the point is we got to get past the polarization that is developing, not just America, but all through the West. That has to happen. And then the third, uh, I would say the fourth thing, which kind of really, uh, as a white guy, you know, I would say uh, I underappreciated in this, and this year really brought it home to me more, is we got to deal with the racial inequities in this country that is essentially, um, that we that has to be, come to terms with. I mean, we, we started with slavery. We had a civil war around the thing. We had reconstruction to try to deal with it. That failed. We had a kind of civil rights thing to try to deal with it. And that's kind of not failed. And we got to do, and this is where the millennials and the Gen Z Yes, that was Zers what I was going to say. Yeah, your point you made. They're saying we have yeah. to deal with this, people. And I think what happened this year in the midst of the pandemic and craziness and all the shit going on, wildfires and Trump, you know, the election and all that, <laughs> what did they get out of there for? They got out there for racial kind of, you know, yeah. let's get beyond this, 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 you know, white, basically white supremacy, which is a good way to think about the system is skewed in such fundamental ways that it has to be dealt with. So I think I don't have as many answers to that one, except I do have a confidence that those two generations, millennials yeah. and, and and Gen Z, are going to prioritize that in such a way, and they're 50-50 yeah. uh, uh, generations, meaning half of them are minorities, so it's not like either, you know, it's, they are the generation to figure this out, I would say. The other thing I would say, which is interesting, I say this in the pieces, I don't know if you caught this, uh, Michael, but um, by 2100, the guy makes the comment, which I think is true. Uh, he says, basically by 2100, all Americans are people of color. Uh, almost all Americans are people of color. And it's kind of a shock when you hear that at first, but then you think about it for a minute here. It's like, if you have the millennials are 50, 50 and, and basically Gen Z is 50, 50 that in that, in an environment like that, that has openness diversity, they're intermarrying. And so the next generations yeah. are going to essentially be people of color. And so and many of them, and there'll be some white couples, obviously, but the, increasingly it's in everyone's interest 
white people who's you know my daughter uh, uh, literally my daughter is actually uh been for five years now with a guy who's african-american guy and their two are gonna have you know uh mixed children so they're gonna have good-looking children (laughs) (laughs) it's like this isn't an abstract issue for me i mean i'm into that issue anyhow and it's you know something i support but i was just telling you there's a lot of the 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 generations of my generation are gonna say well this isn't some oh those poor people we got to help deal with that it's like my grandkids going to be discriminated right right so i think it's going to shift and and then that generation will do another one so it's really reasonable to think that in 2100 you would say oh well all americans are people of color i mean they all have some other races in them right. it's just there there's, aren't there's any a, people you know it's right. just going to be not even happening so it's an interesting right. way to think about it actually yeah there was a, have you ever seen shameless by any chance it's a uh, it's a it's a show on showtime and so one yeah. of the one, one of the interesting um so you brought this up but kevin uh he's married to a black woman and so they have they're having kids and and he's talking about his kid you know his kids and he's like oh and and the future people and she's like what 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 are you talking about what are future people he's like well i just always imagined that you know in 50 100 years you know all kids are going to be of mixed race and so I, I just call them future people and like i've always i've i've thought that for so long like i'm i'm so it's, it, it's taken us so long to get there but i think we're i think we're really close and i think this idea that you know like as we as we continue to see people um uh you know uh break down those cultural and and racial barriers i mean it's just it's just an obvious outcome like there's there's nothing yeah. that would and the only thing the only thing that keeps that from happening is literally beliefs that are passed down from generation to generation that discourage it i mean i cannot tell you how surprising it is when Kristen and i'll sit down with some friends for cocktails and we'll be chatting and i can't tell you like you would be shocked how many people that we know now whose parents told them not to date a black females whose parents told them not to date a black man and this is you know this is 20 years ago this is 15 years ago this is 25 years ago that these females were we're getting told this messaging and it's changing rapidly because of millennials and Gen Z. Yeah. They're going, what are you talking about? I was raised with these people. I'm surrounded by these people. Like what? How? Because our children would flip out. Oh my if God. I heard someone say that. They would flip. Yeah. Our kids would flip. They would like go off on this racist MFR if they heard <laughs> something like that. But it's, it's for real. Like we have to, we have to. I mean, it's, it's not that long ago. It's not that long ago. It's crazy. Well, it's even, you know, I mean, like I think in 68, there was still laws on the books in a lot of states of, you know, banning mm-hmm. interracial marriage. Yeah. I mean, that's like, you know, I was kid then you know i mean like i'm i'm older than you guys but i mean in our lifetimes we've watched that legally be the case so i i would but so so i think there is kind of a way again this is the liberating side of thinking about the future from that longer perspective which which is the perspective of this whole series is it just makes you think about everything differently you go huh that's interesting so if that's the case then why am i so upset right now right right people it's like seems like oh well that's probably i can see why that'll be my kid in there my grandkid or my grandkids kid or whatever it's good anyhow the point is it's it's a really a a mind uh shift and i think we're in it and i think i think it's clear in more of the cosmopolitan you guys are in orlando and and, in uh florida and you know california here and stuff 
particularly when you're around a lot more diversity, um, you know, it's kind of obvious and you kind of think, you know, how's this working out? But, but I think this is what I mean by the dispersion. Actually, we never really fully got to that, but I would say the thing I, I said that California prefigured this thing about the country, but what's happening in real time is that these cities on the coast, particularly often in blue states, have gotten so expensive and now with COVID allowing people to kind of go everywhere. I think what you're watching is the millennials and increasingly uh, going to the heartland and uh, cheap housing. I mean, it's happening all the time now. And uh, also people of color, I think, you know, immigrants and stuff. Yeah. They started in these, you know, LA and all these, you know, places, but they're starting to say, Hey man, it's cheaper in Iowa or something. And so, you know, they end up working in a meat plant in the highway and then they settle there. So it's happening all over the country. And so if you just look at this, it's a kind of a time bomb. Maybe that's the wrong word, but it's essentially something that uh, all these people that are freaking out about it. It's like, they're going to have to just come to terms with it. It's freaking them out, but it's just, it's happening in real time all around us. And I think, yeah, the well, thing to kind of do is just relax. It's just, yeah. you know, honestly, it's not that it, it doesn't change the country yeah. that much. It's all good. You know, it all works. Yeah, well, and, and soon enough, like you said, they become your neighbors. And yeah. when these immigrants are your neighbors, then you're in a closer circle of influence to have them understand where you're coming from. Oh. And once you understand your neighbor, then it's not quite so scary. Right. Completely. Right. Well, you, you, well, you saw that in, in Georgia. I mean, really what happened in Georgia in this, in this last cycle is going to play out, in fact, in the election here to early January. It's like, is if you had these suburbs in the old days were kind of out of Atlanta were basically all these white, you know, lily white, and there's no way you could even get a house out of there. But over time, it's just got more and more diverse. People moved up. The channel, the immigrants came in. And it, pretty soon, the whole metro area was like looking around and going, well, why don't we like you people? We're hanging out with you. We're going to drinks with you. We're mowing the yeah. lawn with you. It's like, and the person right. is like, oh, yeah, that's good. And, you know, who's voting red are these little rural places that, you know, don't have that same you know you know they just don't have that proximity or that familiarity and i think that's but that's changing fast it, it, the country's urbanizing in, in a pretty radical really yeah. fast right. way right um i, I want to share another little piece of and, and this may if you're listening right now and you're looking for a little hope like this is this is cool um you write if anyone back then had known that these generally positive developments were about to happen when the first pandemic hit and you and notice you said the first pandemic hit no. in 2020 uh their anxiety would have dissipated if anyone back then had known what everyone now knows they would have had a huge strategic advantage advantage and could have ended up making a lot of money too. So I'm an, I'm a, um, uh, I, I'm a capitalist. I own my own business. I, I'm an investor, but I'm also, I'm not a laissez faire capitalist. I'm a, I'm a very progressive capitalist where I believe you need a, a strong governmental influence on markets in order to mm-hmm. ensure that you're producing the best outcome for all of society. Um, but that being said, what are you investing in have knowing, <laughs> Knowing what you know now. <laughs> well, first let me talk about the big idea, and then I'll tell you that specific thing. Is, <laughs> is, is, is like here's here's one of the motivators of this whole series, this whole project, because it's really taking me about a year and a half to do this project. Not full time because I'm doing other stuff too. But um, anyhow, it's been a, it's been a really uh, a, an interesting project here. I've, by the way, I've interviewed 25 experts around the world, which is referenced in this series and all kinds of stuff. So there's a lot of going on here, a lot of data I've been analyzing. Um, 
But one of the reasons I was laying this out here is uh, people right now are so fearful of the future. They are so filled with despair about what's ahead of us. They are completely overwhelmed with the sense that we can't solve these challenges. We can't, you know, they're freaked out about everything going on. And um, and and so what I, what I was trying to do with this thing was just to say, uh, by kind of skewing the story a little bit by just saying let's let's draw out the positive possibilities of going forward here a little bit and lay out which are not pie in the sky they're not Pollyannish as you said they're not waiting for space aliens or something to sell save everything I mean it's there's plausible possible things and they're built on what I call the inexorables a bunch of a dozen trends that are essentially going to happen one way or the other and so what I was just trying to do is lay that out and say if you now get a glimpse of what could well happen in the future like the people in the future looking back would know right it would essentially lower your anxiety. It would give you more hope for the future because you'll see like, oh, you know, honestly, it looks like we have the clean energies that could actually scale at this time to actually turn the corner on climate change as opposed to like we're just doomed. It's all going to be screwed and, you know, we're all going to go down in a heap fireball of, you know, kind of chaos in the end. I mean, you need to see this. Uh, and, and, and so, but people don't have the capacity to, you know, just like out of the top of their head think, Oh, I understand how that could happen. They need to see that world. They need to see those trends play out. They need to kind of have someone walk them into that world and explain that world and show how it works. And that's what this series is about and doing it. Now, if you do see those things, there are uh, it gives you a strategic advantage, honestly. And I do think in a very practical way as a business person, uh, it gives you a way to make a shitload of money. Now, I'll say one reason you asked me what I would invest in. I will say this to you about this. I won't go into this literal specifics. <laughs> we can talk about that later offline. If you, if you exactly. <laughs> but, but I'm but I'm telling you, and I lay this out very clearly in the piece is like we are going into a triple whammy long boom of technology boom and economic boom that this is i would argue is uh as a good chance of dwarfing the economic booms we saw in this last era from 1980 2020 there was a lot of a, a big boom economic there was a tech boom off digital technologies and an economic boom globalization all around the world anyhow a bunch of ways to talk about that there was a big boom off of the world war ii we've talked about that i think people are really are not wrapping their heads around what's ahead of us. And I'll tell you why. It's like we talked about what's ahead of us when you pull on the second half of the planet, full bandwidth, AI, what is that going to do to innovation right. and all the different you know, industries that are going to come off that? Second thing is that's one world historical technology that's going to play out. Second world historical technology is going to play out is biotech and essentially two fundamental things. We have the genetic understanding of uh, humans now, but also how genes work and how they play out and how to modify them and all kinds of stuff. Anyhow, there's a whole genetic understanding series of uh, industries and services and products and all kinds of stuff can come out. And then I, then I would call what you call a little broader, call it biological engineering, which is includes a genetic engineering, which we now know how to edit the, the genome, humans as well as plants and animals and everything else. We're, we're kind of limited on what we want to do with humans. But anyhow, the point is, we can now design nature in a way that used to be, uh, you know, we it's like godlike powers. But anyhow, that's right. doable now. We're doing it. I mean, we're doing it consistently now. So anyhow, the point is, in the next 30 years, 
that area, that thing is going to explode, explode in, yeah. in, in in things. And you're seeing the beginnings of it with this this this, this uh, pandemic sparked. You know, in the space of you know nine months, we got yeah. all these vaccines that would have taken years to do. So anyhow, there's a whole thing going on about that. And then, so, so there's a whole biotech boom that's going to happen. And then the third one is the uh, clean energy boom. And I will say without question, we're going to and you're watching it with the early Biden stuff here and all kinds of stuff, but we are finally going to take climate change seriously and scale up clean energies in a way that is going to be another world historical boom. And just put it this way. If you told an investor right now that the entire planet's energy system is going to go from a carbon-based one in in 2020 to primarily a clean energy one in 2050, what part of that do you not see as an economic <laughs> opportunity right. and a business opportunity for investment? That scale of that change is mind boggling. Yeah. And I would just say, and then, so you're going to have three of these things happening simultaneously right. on a globally interconnected planet. And, and so you, 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 this is, this is, you talk, so, so without going into, Hey, this company might be good. Although you can kind of go that way. Just, that context is such that if people are worrying about, oh, the whole global economy is going to collapse and there'll be no growth and, you know, we can't do this. That's just nuts. And and uh, so anyhow, I, I, the, the other thing I'll say about this and the reason I'm saying this with such kind of confidence, you can say right now, is my original project that I did in the 90s, which I mentioned, you called the long boom. It was essentially trying to describe the long boom of technology boom off of digital technologies and essentially economic boom off of technology, digital technologies and globalization that was going to come off the 90s and was going to go to 2020. And we said a bunch of things like, yeah, Amazon was going to go from a goofball thing to, you know, a trillion dollar company, those kind of things. But uh, also the Dow, I'll just tell you, when my piece came out, in 20 uh, in 1997 explaining this future boom thing uh the dow was at 5000 and <laughs> there there was it was at 5000 and um and also wow. another book came, i also wrote a book on this a book went into multiple languages uh and, you know, it was a very successful book um Another book at that time was called The Dow 30,000. It was a, uh, at the time it was a kind of uh that book and my book got kind of lumped together because it was about booms and all that. And people were making it about the stock market boom. I was talking about more fundamental tech and economy, economy boom. But right. basically, uh, it always got lumped in with the stock booms. And so people were sitting there, Dow 30,000? That's insane. There's Impossible. no never thing. happened. It never happened. What? They just ludicrous. You people are nuts. And so, I don't know. Have you looked at the Dow, actually, last few months? Uh, or yes. It's, like, it's, it's literally what like 30,100, 30, something like that. It's it just it what? just peaked thirty thousand. What do you know? It happened yeah. twenty five <laughs> years ago. You could actually say, "Hey, if this digital economy goes global, and if we integrate this thing, and if this happens for twenty five years, the Dow will probably be a thirty thousand. You know, and you know you can't guarantee that, but that is a damn lot closer. <laughs> in fact, in this case, totally prescient than uh, what people at the time were saying, like, oh, no, it'll never happen, never happen, never happen. I mean, this is the thing. So I'm just saying, folks, yeah, we're in yeah. another one of those long booms. It's going to happen. Now, you know, 
devil's in the details. You got to find the right companies and all that kind of stuff. But I will right. say uh, it's 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 uh, we've got a lot of growth ahead of us. Yeah, and I, would, I, I would, I'm like you. I'm I'm a I'm not into the only way to solve this is going to be a combination of strong government and vigorous business. It's it's not a one or the other thing. It's it's an alignment. And I make this very clear in this, uh, particularly the piece of how we solve climate change is you have to have both to make this scale and move fast. Yeah. What? Oh, sorry. <laughs> I thought you had something specific <laughs> to say. Well, I was just going to say, um, you know, I, I completely agree um, with this idea that like, you know, I... I <sighs> It's so frustrating. I honestly, it's just so frustrating that people think that because you're a progressive or because you're a Democrat or because you vote, I, like I, I wouldn't actually consider myself a Democrat. I would consider myself a progressive who tends to vote Democrat, yeah. who also is a capitalist. Yeah. But, um, it's complicated. It's complicated, but I think that it's so important to have like a guiding governmental direction to help get somewhere. Like the whole idea, uh, you know, when I when I think about the importance of you know having regulations so that you don't have this laissez-faire economics, like what I've, so many people don't recognize the extent to it. the people the, the hardcore Republicans, the, you know the Karens of the world who have you know all you know the the protections that they have uh, when they're driving their car to the store or you know whatever they're doing in their day, they're protected in so many ways that are in visible and those invisible hands come from the government no there are very few you know companies that are actually mm -hmm. individually out there looking out for mm -hmm. us as mm -hmm. individuals um and if you can have a progressive government that's looking to rebuild the infrastructure of the united states that's looking to get us off of fossil fuels that's looking to leverage the power of technology ai decentralized digital infrastructures and move us forward so that we can actually play the big game that I think we're being called to play some fascinating beautiful amazing extraordinary things are going to happen and back to your point just about like you know those industries and, and being an investor and knowing where to go like I think it's so important to look at the three the three things that you talked about and then go look for companies that are you know maybe they're not the biggest companies maybe they're smaller companies that are actually providing the resources to those bigger companies. And that's what I've found, you know, most of my investing success has been in, you know, some bigger companies, but some smaller companies that are actually providing the resources um, to those bigger companies to produce, you know, the, what it, what ultimately will be the future. And I think it's it's incredibly important. Well, one, one thing I'll mention, building on that, I totally agree with you. I, I will say, again, I think this progressive label is uh, going through changes. Um, but but I always make a clear uh, distinction. So, for example, I will say what California Democrats are, are definitely pro-capitalist. Now, there is a faction of what is considered sometimes the progressive wing of the California Democrats that sound often kind of anti-capitalist or anti-market or, you know, government has to kind of run everything kind of thing. That, that's a minority. It's like, think of it is it's like uh, Gavin Newsom's a great example, uh, who I actually have interviewed in events and 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 know to some extent myself and he's um, getting pounded on right now like if if you bring up newsom like you you could start a bar fight yeah that's fair enough but but i will tell you this <laughs> but again from a historical point of view take a look at him i will say 
he totally gets, and this is a general California thing. Californians, I mean, they're entrepreneurs. They they want to run. So they they don't want the government running everything. They're not. That's not just. That's just like some old idea that's just super outdated. It's like I mean, Newsom himself was a successful businessman. He made a bunch of money. Anyhow, it's like there is a a, a misnomer out there that the democratic and I would call progressive way forward. Think of the progressives, think of it as conservative and progressive as the distinction in American history. Now, conservative can be right wing kind of populist nationalists. It can also be kind of traditional conservative. I mean, there's a range of conservatives, but in general, you can say, oh, that's a conservative way forward. There's the same thing in progressive. You can go from you know, crazy, you know, people like communists and, you know, kind of hardcore socialists. You can also go to kind of Obama, you know, and Biden kind of, uh, you know, Neo, neoliberal. neoliberal. Yeah, you can go that you can go into kind of uh, I, w- I would call uh, Gavin Newsom and, and I would say Kamala Harris, too, is kind of this Californian kind of entrepreneurial. I just think of like I just think of like California of- dream and it's like yeah, they're just yeah, like yeah. surfing on the this wave of capitalism, but like yeah, throwing out like so, throwing out like rice packets to everybody that they pass by. Well, well exactly. So, so anyhow, the point is, there's a range of these things, and I would just say we got to get over the the kind of uh, the general way to think about it is there's these two basic approaches. There's a range of sub up debates inside there. And then, by the way, the same thing happened with F- FDR. It, it wasn't like FDR was, uh, you know, you think of him as more progressive or they call it at that time more liberal. Uh, that was just the moniker they used at that time. But I mean, he was constantly fighting with his, you know, at the time there were, there were literally socialists and, and, and communists who were in the coalition behind the right. kind of New Deal coalition. But he, and he had some of them in his cabinet once in a while and stuff like that. But it wasn't like and, and he was being called from the outside by the other side, the, the Republican conservatives, him, they're calling him a socialist, but the actual socialists in his coalition were always calling him out that he was being too right. much of capital. This happens at every juncture. It's <laughs> it like does, the country is yeah. a huge country. We need, you know, when you essentially take a country of 300 and, you know, what are we now? 330, 350 yeah. million people. And you got two parties. There's going to be a range of stuff in there, and they're not going to freaking agree lockstep on everything. So, of course, so instead of focusing on the little debate on the fringes of like what policy you're going to do, think of it as a big picture. There's a country that's going to go one way or they're going to go that way. And I think we're in this place where it is shifting from primarily conservative thing. Which, by the way, defined how Bill Clinton was kind of working within a kind of conservative era. And, and, and Obama, I would also say, was kind of working within a conservative era. It's like he couldn't do everything they wanted to maybe do. But they were like, you know, reforming welfare was what Clinton was doing, you know, because around him was this whole conservative thing about getting rid of welfare. Anyhow, that kind of thing is in, was the conservative era. I think now we're in a different framework, which is I'm terming more progressive era. And there will... It'll disappoint some of the far left kind of crew that'll say we're not going far enough, fast enough. But it also will piss off the other conservative crew that's saying we're way too radical for the country. But I would say in general, looking back on what's going to happen in this country in the next 30 years, particularly from the view of American history in the future, they're going to say, ah, okay, right around 2020, they shifted direction. They started uh, moving in this more progressive direction. They took on these big challenges and uh, the world, uh, America changed in those coming decades. And in 
fact, uh, so did the world. And that is the series that uh, I encourage everybody on here to, to watch a meeting called The Transformation. And there's like literally six stories of five are out right now. Uh, they're all well, good. Why don't, read. You, t- why don't you share exactly how people can find you? And and I'm not I'm not wrapping up the conversation just yet. I want to. I've got. I mean, a couple, we don't I've, got there, a, but- I've got one or two more questions. But I, uh, while we're at it, just go ahead and share with you like how people can find you on social media, where they can find um, this new piece that you came out called the transformation. Like, just tell people where they can find all of that. Uh, well, my name's Peter. I'm PeterLyden.com. You can go there and that's kind of you can, my base in the world there explains everything I do and my background, all stuff. So PeterLyden.com and, and my last name is L-E-Y-D-E-N. So PeterLyden.com there. On Twitter, I'm Pete Lyden, not Peter, because I go by Pete in kind of short term. Pete Lyden on Twitter. Uh, you can follow me there. I'm often uh, pointed there. And Medium, you can just go to the same Pete Lyden dot medium.com boom you can get to where I, all the, the the stories are there and ultimately the series the transformation has its own world in medium and that goes to medium dot reinvent like the word reinvent.net if you go to that that's the transformation or once you're in medium just search for the transformation all these stories are open and free they're not behind any kind of paywall anyone can read them they're a good read. You can read them through the apps. You can read them through the web. Uh, I would encourage you to do that and, and spread the words. And uh, and uh, also, if you get me, you can get me through my website. And there's ways to contact me that way. And I'm happy to uh, keep the conversation going well beyond this. And although this has been a fantastic is, conversation, yeah. I know we're not done yet. But I'm just right. saying it's been a really good conversation. And I totally appreciate how you two have. Uh, you, 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 we're, we're in sync here with our kind of the energy and the, and the, the excitement about the future, honestly, because we're in yeah, it. Yeah, well, honestly, we fucking need it. I mean, it's... it's, it's <laughs> 20, <laughs> That's another way to think of it. Yeah, 2020 was a shit bag for most people. And like, you know, like I'm kind of like you, like I'm always an optimist. I'm always looking for the thing. Like in March, like I was, I was, you know, it was very, it was very hard time. Like I, I remember... Uh, my father was just retiring and like he was he was about to step away from his job and then the stock market tanked and um you know i was like i was like okay like what's the optimistic viewpoint here and then like i started telling my mom i'm gonna do these investments she's like well i'll send you money and you can invest for me and like we just started doing all these investments in in march and like this we just saw this huge like awesome return um you, you know and it's like i'm always looking for the opportunities in a bad time but at the same time um you know people are really struggling right now and it's it's a very hard time for so many people and i just wanted to like you know when i saw your piece on the next hundred years like for me it was like it was an opportunity to step back and look at the big picture and maybe bring people some hope who have don't have as much right now and i think um you know it's, it's really tough and i think we need more people stepping up um not only to give hope but also to give like real real help uh in the real world um but before we wrap up, you you talk about five core innovations in Transformed. Uh, you actually write, the Enlightenment came up with five core innovations that created the operating system upon which Western societies and ultimately societies around the world built on for more than 200 years. The transformation superseded all five of those core innovations and created a different civilization in the process. Their steam engine was our digital computer, the core building block of the new system. They scaled up carbon energies 
and we did the same thing with clean energies. They had their industrial revolution. We had our biological revolution. They invented financial capitalism. We reinvented sustainable capitalism, uh, which I really appreciate you bringing that point up. They invented representative democracy, and we devi- and we devised digital democracy. Um, of all those things, the one that jumped out at me that I'm the most curious about is digital democracy. Like, what do you specifically mean by digital democracy? Whoa. Well, first of all, I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate you calling that part of the, the series out because, uh, and by the way, the next story, I do talk about it in the story you're referencing there, but I also do devote a whole story to it. Next week is going to be coming out um, on this civilizational piece. And so let me just say something about that. And then I'll talk about the digital democracy briefly here is um, this is the biggest idea of the whole piece, honestly. And I think the most unusual, but it's also the trippiest. So only kind of a guy, you know, so, so it kind of puts people off and they try to like whoa what is this guy talking about <laughs> and uh but so let me just give I a wasn't moment. that way uh, okay okay well you're into it that's good but but when you when you talk about changing the civilization like some people have a hard time wrapping their heads around this but let, so let me put it in context here for a second which is um the changes that we're going to see in the next 30 years, and I would think, think also coming on these changes that we've even seen in the last 40, from about 1980, when the digital computers came in, you know, the personal computer and the early internet and that kind of stuff. And, and anyhow, the changes we've been watching, and we've kind of been talking about the rise of these tech companies and the globalization economy and the rise of China and, you know, all this stuff. And anyhow, there's a bunch of, there's been that period, which we kind of get now. It's like, okay, got us into this massive climate change and other stuff. And then, but I think the next 30, which I lay out here to kind of the beginnings of what I call the transformation, um, will continue uh, through the century. And I think if you cont- if you look at it in 2100, when they look back on 120 years from 1980, think of it as, but particularly around the acceleration that happens right around now, 2020, they will see those changes as so profound that they'll say, we're really operating in a different civilization right. at the end of the century than we actually were in coming out of it. Are going into it, let's say, in 2000. And so let me say one more thing about that. It's like the last time the world saw the essentially the invention of a civilization was essentially the enlightenment in Western Europe and the United States uh, at the very early days. It was a you could kind of it's you can dispute the timing of it, but it was roughly about. Oh, 1650, 1680, you know, kind of in the 17th century, 16 uh, to uh, through the 1700s or the through the 18th century to about 19, uh, 1800. So there's about 120 years there that saw the invention of all these fundamentally new innovations that were world historical. You mentioned them and quickly, but you know, the steam engine, we didn't have an engine, you know, humans would have to lift everything in animals. And then all of a sudden we think, Oh, we can actually have these machines that do it. And then we've, Oh, we can actually go from just throwing logs on a fire to like car, you know, coal and then oil. And then anyhow, carbon energies to like supercharge our energy systems. And then, you know, industrial production to kind of scale up all this stuff. And financial capitalism is a huge one that you forget about, but essentially before that period, you know, there was no gold standard. Like people, you know, would take a coin and they chew it and give it to you, and you didn't know if it was right or if it was even gold. And <laughs> anyhow, you had no way to trade, and no one, you know, trusted anyone. Anyhow, so we created essentially financial capitalism to really made capitalism work. Uh, 
and then representative democracy, you know, as you know, you know, all human history had been run by just kings and, you know, that's it. And then finally, out of feudalism, we figured out how to have representative democracy. All those were world changing, but they also were fundamentally different civilization. It's like it ran differently than anything came before. And the rules of that old feudalism and that old king thing and that old kind of, you know, craft handmade everything was didn't apply to, to the new ones. They had to invent everything kind of differently. They had to build yeah. a civilization. That civilization we're still in right now. Yeah. In other words, yeah. we're, we're doing everything is the same and, and, and it's gotten us into trouble, uh, you know, with climate change coming out the carbon and all this stuff. But it's also made an amazing world. It's, it's scaled up incredible production and lifestyles. And here we are talking to each other across the country. And anyhow, amazing shit. Yeah. But but we still are working in the same five things. We haven't changed right. it. What I'm positing in this thing, in the next 30 years, we will make huge progress in those other five things that are essentially going to supersede those other innovations. And in doing so, through the rest of the century, from 2050, because the stories only go to 2050, we'll have another 50 years of innovations off that. And that at the end of that period, we will be in a world that will be all digital, like Everything will be computerized and everything will be interconnected and it'll have, you know, AI clarking through and all that kind of stuff. But anyhow, all digital, it'll be fully global. It'll essentially be operating on a planetary scale in without, I mean, they'll still be, hey, you'll still live in your city and you'll organize your little local neighborhoods. But you essentially, from a systems point of view, it'll all be global or we won't be there because of climate change. So anyhow, it'll be all global, working on a planetary scale. That's totally different than every system we've had before, which had the most were national or international between nations will be global. And the third thing will be well sustainable, meaning it'll be sustainable uh, in terms of the planet. Uh, So we won't blow the climate out. We won't kind of over pollute the thing. We won't run over all natural living things, you know, anyhow, it'll be sustainable and it'll be sustainable socially because you won't have riots and revolutions and coming up all the time. And it'll uh, now, will that happen? You know, it's not guaranteed. Uh, and in fact, many things could go wrong. And there's all these dystopian science fiction things of how we'll all be, you know, running around like, you know, you know, savages at that time because everything will be destroyed. So I get that there, it's not guaranteed. But if we make this successfully, which we can right. do, we will be in a different world that's a different civilization. Because I will tell you, a society where you're essentially monitoring every corner of the planet for the climate, adjusting our responses to, you know, what to do to kind of adjust that plant climate and, you know, regionally, de- you know, dealing with this kind of integrated global ecosystem instantaneously. That thing is a lot different than a system where you're just praying for rain every day <laughs> and, hoping, and hoping God is going to basically rain. And if it doesn't yeah. rain, we're screwed. I mean, right. that's it's just such so different. It's like so so all these things we're used to and that are still kind of defining the way we run stuff. I mean, you know, uh, that's well, only a generation away. I, I used to yeah. stand with my grandpa looking at the rain gauge when he was worried about the crops, you know, so. Well, yeah. you, well and to this day right now, there's a lot of people like that. My mom's like that, too. Anyway, I'm just saying, though. If we get to that point, it's a different thing. And be, to do that, you're going to need a different civilization. And, and so that civilization will be called something different. And so the real name of the transformation of the series, uh, you can just think of it, oh, it's transforming our society, transforming our technologies. The idea by the end of the series, you realize, is that we call this entire 120 
year period from 1980 to 2100 as the transformation in the same way we talk about that whole period from 1680 to 1800 through the seven, you know, 17th, 1700s the enlightenment right now you say the enlightenment and you think oh okay that's isaac newton and that's the founding fathers in the end um essentially were you know in america here were the end of the enlightenment they were essentially innovating the world's you know essentially the biggest innovation in uh in representative democracy was america and the right. founding fathers and um but that was part of a 120 year thing and it was highly influenced and pretty much driven by Europe more than US. The US was kind of yes. an outlier. But anyhow, that thing, we're in another one of those. We'll call it in the long view of history, we'll call it something. I mean, you know, who knows? They'll call it the transformation. But in my way of telling the story, it's they'll call it a two word thing like that. And we'll just like you say, oh, Roman Empire, oh, the Enlightenment, oh, you know, the Renaissance, you know, oh, the transformation. There'll be something we'll call like that that'll say, oh, that's when the world went digital, global, sustainable. And boom, it was a different era from that point on. And that's the fun part about the piece. And so anyhow, that's the longer way to think about it, which is the trippy way to think about it. And by the way, my <laughs> talk, which I'm going to do here, which will be streamed in uh, February 9th, is about that civilizational thing, thing is really the, mo the, the way I'll be going deep on that. But anyhow, um, the long short, the, the last piece is the digital democracy. So I'm going to punt on this briefly because I will tell you, out of those five innovations i'm very clear how the digital revolution digital computers supersede machines in fact that was the story of the last 40 years and i was been all over that the second one about carbon energy transition transition to clean i laid out in my series and it's clear how we can do that um the third one about uh financial or, or industrial production to industrial revolution to you know, biological revolution I, I also laid it out about how we're gonna do that when i'm talking to you about biological engineering all that stuff that's laid out that's understood how that's going to happen uh and the fourth one about sustainable capitalism i gave you some of those ideas of how we could actually evolve from shareholder to stakeholder and a bunch of stuff that goes beyond that to kind of mix that the one i don't know and i'm honestly say this is uh the digital democracy one uh in terms of how that would work but i will say this and and, and in terms of the story the way i play this out is that the political innovation in the enlightenment came at the very end of that period of innovation mm -hmm. because it's the last thing to go. The the technologies changed, the energy sources changed, the, the economy changed. And then it was only at the end of that period that it wasn't just America, it was also the French Revolution. And essentially, democracy, the governing systems mm -hmm. changed. I think it's going to be the same here, which is we're going to see the technologies are changing. I already laid out three booms, uh, three huge world historical booms. We're going to see the economics around that. We're going to see all that changing. I think it's not clear yet, but eventually we will come to the econ uh, the, 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 the political innovation, the government innovation. And I'll say one last thing about that. And so I kind of say it's going to happen in the net, the second part of this, which I don't really focus on in this series, although I might speculate in future series. But here's what I will say to you about this, which I think is I have thought a lot about this is many of the problems you're watching in today's politics are being talked about as essentially the limits of that enlightenment system we devised 225 mm. or 250 years ago. 
right. the electoral college. Oh, it was this compromise between the slave owners and the rural states. It was a call, total goofball thing about the electors. The kind of Senate was the same thing. We had to buy, get buy-in and we tried to do, okay, everyone gets two seats. And so now you got California with 40 million people, the same two senators as Wyoming with, you know, essentially less than a million. It's like, you know, Wyoming, it's like, you know, Wyoming could fit in like one neighborhood of LA, right? And they got, two, <laughs> and they, and they got anyhow, that thing is just, it's an old, it's a system they did. When they, when Thomas Jefferson and all those guys devised the thing, they didn't even understand electricity. They didn't even know what happened. I mean, you know, Ben Franklin was out there with a kite trying to figure out, wow, there's something lightning that might be interesting. <laughs> it's like, so they had no idea about electronics or computers right. or instantaneous kind of communication. So what we are feeling right now is essentially the obvious thing that's going to happen, that the world has moved so much farther than that totally out of dated, completely brittle, goofball kind of compromise system, which was a beautiful thing in its time. Super right. innovation over, you know, the the divine power of kings, you know. Uh, it was totally better than that. But it is so over its head on what a complex, you know, 350 million people instantaneously connected throughout the world and all this stuff we know, flying around on planes all the time. That thing just can't. It's just it's dysfunctional. It's, it's getting this so different. It, yeah. It, it's a, and so what I do think is going to happen is that we're going to Daisy. If you reinvent governing and democracy for the 21st century, you would be insane not to take advantage of computer technologies. Right. Uh, just like the founding fathers, if you know, if they looked around at the time, they said, "Okay, we got to build a government. Like, how are we going to do it? Well, we're going to have to get everyone to come and talk. You know, so you got to take a course from." This, you know, it's going to get, so we'll gather once a year and whatever. Yeah, you didn't be. mean to say it, but you said the confounding fathers. Anyhow, if they had computers, they would have been, of course they would have used computers. Like, who wouldn't use computers? So what's going to happen is some kind of evolution is going to happen this century. Uh, I don't know enough about the space to really speculate. I know some people are working on that. Um, but I will say this is I would be extremely surprised if we don't get uh, a fundamental reinvention of governing systems, possibly through a con you know a convention, a constitutional convention, there might be something right. comparable that comes off the old system that you know legitimizes it somehow. But I cannot imagine that we will be running America in the end of this century the way we are now, because frankly, it ain't working. <laughs> well, yeah, and and I think to your point, I mean, like the fact that you brought up this um, digital democracy, and and I really appreciate your honesty and your forthcomingness to be like, well, I know it has to happen. I haven't done all the research yet, so I I just like to lay out the gauntlet to like the random Twitch user or the YouTuber who like yeah. stumbles upon this podcast, like. I want to I, I want to find like that person who's just like so passionate who just wants to dive deep into it because I think there is something here. I mean, obviously, you look at you know there's there's nothing that you can hand a person who is distraught over Trump losing the election and say here look at this this proves there's no fraud like there's nothing physically there's nothing yeah. there's no way to prove anything to them so we're going to need at some point some sort of um, you know crypto way of uh, no I'm serious like <laughs> cryptocurrency it could be, it could be crypto, crypto yeah. 
cryptocurrency is built on blockchain. Blockchain yep. is this idea that we can like lock in um, and, and un- create unhackable. I, I was just reading how they're like finding the crap out of those Robin Hood guys today. So. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, that's, that's, that's All right, interesting. I, I'm, I'm actually quite curious about that. I want to know what, what actually happened there. Um, but seriously, like this, this you know, we, we've got to figure this out. And, and I think it's going to be, I think we're going to have to figure it out. And I think this election proved that. And I think it's going to push, no. push us forward into being able to do that. Nothing happens overnight. Um, the cliche is Rome was not built in a day. Everybody out there, be patient. Realize that these forces that Pete is talking about are literally unstoppable unless we like blow ourselves up or we get wiped out by climate change before we can make these happen. Or if this- we get too scared. I mean, because like when you're listening mm. to it, it sounds very overwhelming. It sounds a bit scary, but like. Yeah. It's okay. You can right. go with yeah. the flow. Agreed. Yeah. Go with the flow. Take it one step at a time. Uh, I, I, would, I, would, I would totally, yeah. The fear, I think the biggest problem right now is is fear of the future. It's debilitating to people. And it's also allowing, um, you know, people on both sides, but to just uh, undermine any kind of progress. And, and to be fair, though, I will say this about American history. Um, you know, just uh, I, I know we're probably getting to the end here somehow, but I, I don't know. We can keep talking all that here. But I will say this one thing about American history, which is uh, America has essentially gone through about four. I think I think this is going to be the fifth reinvention of America since the, that founding father stage, and uh, we've gone through these periods where the technologies change, the economy changes, uh, power shifts, uh, all kinds of stuff happens. And essentially we get to these points that we have to essentially uh, do some fundamental reinvention and changes to, to kind of move ahead. And uh, we watched it around the Civil War. We, we got trapped in, you know, we had to resolve this slave owner to kind of free labor economies and Anyhow, get beyond that thing. And honestly, that was brutal and difficult, but eventually we got through that. And then we had to go with the kind of robber barons and the oil and, 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 and uh, you know, great uh, railroad barons. And stuff. We had to have a kind of a reinvention around the early right. 20, like 1900, kind of early 20th century and the kind of the progressive era. And then we had to go through this thing in the 30s and the crash and the, you know, rise of fascism. And that thing came out of that was the war and the post-war boom. And when we had this Reagan revolution and we had a kind of re-engenerized, you know, kind of more conservative era that kind of made it more entrepreneurial and made shit happen. And now we're in another one. And I just say what happens around every one of these kind of junctures uh, it gets uh, the passions get super high. Yeah. Uh, both sides get extremely invested in the outcome. Uh, politics gets really polarized and gets paralyzed. We don't can't do shit. And and we really talk like almost close to civil war. We did go to civil war various times, but if you look at the rhetoric of the 30s, it was you know, uh, it was it was extreme and passion super super high. And uh, anyhow, the point is, we do get through these periods. We do broker a new kind of coalition and a Senate coalition. We do create a new majority. We do reinvent the, the systems. We do kind of move forward. And I am absolutely convinced uh, we're going to do it. We're doing it again. We're in the process of it. We're going to do it again. We're totally capable of doing it. Uh, but in those periods, it's confusing and, 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 and really difficult. And uh, it's hard for people to see it. And so this series is my attempt to kind of lay out <clears throat> how you can imagine it will go 
not in some fantasy way, but in a very plausible way, well argued on the basis of trends in motion, things that are playing out. And uh, I think it, it, it's helpful in these junctures, but I, I will say this, whether it's my scenario that of positive scenario in the future, positive or positive what, plausible one, or some other one, I'm convinced we will get through this juncture and we'll get beyond this kind of um, paralysis politically and, and polarization. And we will actually uh, move, move ahead in ways that I think are gonna be much more positive than most people are gonna find it's gonna be more positive future than they're worried about and uh but we it's not inevitable and we all have to kind of do our part to move ahead so i hope uh hope people take it and and, you know i hope you guys read the piece but also listen to this and spread the word and uh we we can do this and we need to do this and like there's no time to waste so let's get moving now yeah we have no fucking choice but to do this pete you're i mean I, I don't throw this word around lightly and Kristen can't stand when I use this word, but your wisdom is fucking like, I, I'm so, imp- I'm so appreciative of that, of that. You've really taken, you've stepped back. You've taken the knowledge of the things that you've gained. You put them together in a way that you can communicate it. And, uh, it, it's just extraordinary. Your passion, your purpose. It's, it's just truly immeasurable it's the it's the kind of hope that we really need in this kind of uh in this kind of polarized moment so i really appreciate you sharing everything you've shared with us today um and i hope we can do this again sometime down for it and uh yeah no let's stay in touch i i I, I, often you get kind of people interviewing you for a podcast or an interviewer kind of and who don't kind of get it and they don't really respond or they kind of have a very kind of combative kind of way to go at it and uh you not this has been a great conversation i've enjoyed every minute of it i've had my one beer but now i i gotta run to the fridge and get another beer now dark as you can see here and now i'm finally doing my friday evening as opposed, you guys are kind of deep in your night, whatever, but I'm like started. So I appreciate it. And uh, looking forward to seeing what, what you do with this thing. And, and I hope people who do, uh, uh, you know, kind of run with these ideas. It's yeah. It, it, yeah. It, 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 uh, and uh, thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. It was a pleasure. All right. Thanks, Pete. Awesome. All right. Bye-bye. See you. As the globe continues to shrink and the power of information screams forward, every action, every idea has a chance to catch fire and set the world ablaze. In this time of great uncertainty, we look boldly in the face of calamity with cocktail in hand. Join us every single week as we discuss the technology, politics, and social issues facing humanity's global future. If you'd like bonus content, our weekly newsletter, or an opportunity to join us live, simply go to cocktailsandcalamity.com to join the movement. You can find us live on Facebook at Cocktails and Calamity every Friday at 5 p.m. You can also watch or listen anytime on YouTube, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Join us live, engage in the conversation. We'll see you there.